What time you got? What do you got? What are you, 11 o'clock? 12.21 a.m. Oh, my God. Are you serious? Is this going to be all right? Yeah. No, I uh, I have it down to science. I took a shower, then I weighed down for a 20-minute nap, and then I drank a cup of coffee, and then I will calm myself down with a couple of beers during the, the conversation. <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> uh, no, I'm good. Don't worry about it. Okay. Although, although we had we had a we had a nice like home Korean barbecue, uh, we uh over at the the in laws place, of course. And she, she like my mother in law is like a huge whiskey fan, um. So she always has really good stuff. But I I limited myself to to a to a single a single serving, um. So you owe me one. I do. That's that's a steep price to pay to be a guest on the show. I forgot I have you set up. I have Taipei set up in my uh, today view. I could. I didn't need to ask you what time it was. I could have just uh, opened today, my world clock. Well, I guess that that says enough about today. You know what? I I think the problem is that I usually I, I really only open that thing up for. It's it's kind of weird to have that be today and notifications. Like I understand why they grouped it together that way but i think in practice it's weird because it's one or the other is always two steps away instead of one step away yeah and i, I yeah i agree i i don't know i i never click on today either i'm i'm looking at like it actually took me a couple seconds to remember what you were talking about when you said today um it's i use it for notifications only and i don't know i guess that's kind of true on both os's although i was talking about the mac not not ios but uh it's kind of true on both os's where I've always got it on notifications, not uh, today. Yeah. No, it's uh, well, it's interesting because um, I don't know. You you could almost see that as being being a shift, right? Like, I mean, almost with everything is is more almost responsive in real time. Whereas today, that's like your that's like a plan, and I don't know. Maybe we're it's <laughs> we're hardly authorities to talk about uh, having a, a set schedule and. Right. Uh, marching through the day so we're, we're probably outliers yeah i've seen some people who've wanted who've requested they wish that there was a way to make at least on the mac i think only on the mac it wouldn't make sense on ios but on the mac that they could make that persistent and like just say like take those two inches on the right side of my screen and just always make it today and you know i've got a big 30 inch imac here or something you know big uh thunderbolt display I don't need the whole screen for this. Just treat my screen as what's left and give me that today view over there so I've got like a permanent agenda. Sure. Oh, no, totally. I, I did something similar to that when, um, uh, like when, when I was at Microsoft and Windows 8 and you could mix like the regular desktop and then like uh, Windows 8 apps in like, a, in like a sliver on the side of the screen. And so I put my calendar there um, for that exact reason. Uh, it, was, it, 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 it worked out perfectly and then I just had a quick view of what was going on. Um, and people have done right. that. People have done that virtually, or or in a mismatch of digital and analog for as long as they've been using computers in their office. If you think about like sticky notes on the side of a of a monitor. Oh no! Totally, totally. And it, I think that's that's something that's uh com like what was the, were you talking linked to this? Like there's like the, that new accessory for like an iPad where you can actually like have it as a secondary display or whatever. Um, to me, the 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 compelling case, if you have an iPad in your desk, is just yeah, just have you have have it there for your calendar and stuff like that. I mean, it's yeah. I, I didn't link to that. I know which one. You're, I forget the name of the thing you're talking about, but I know exactly what you're talking about. And I've been looking at. I've been thinking about trying that out, but I I'm, I wouldn't use it again. I would not use it as a uh, like a. I wouldn't put an app over there. 
any app, I, but I could, I would think about using it exactly like you said, like as a sort of, uh, like a pasteboard. I don't know, like a bulletin board. Yeah. I don't know. I, I'm a, I'm a, uh, I, I'm a screen maven. So I have, I mean, I have, I have three screens on my desk, so, um, I don't know if I even have room for an iPad. Yeah. What's the name of that thing? Is it reflector or is that a different thing? No, I think I, I want to say sort of an L, but I, I'm that might be totally making that up. Um, but the, yeah, the idea is I think it was built by a former Apple guy or something. So it, it, like, and apparently it it actually it actually works quite well. Let's see, air display, duet. No, duet, duet. I think that's it. Duet display. Yeah, there we go. I will put it in the show notes. We'll look at it for next week. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> first, first, yeah, first school response. Duet display. X Apple engineers turn your iPad into an extra screen. So yeah. they, they, and that's that's their that's actually their their page title for Google. So they're definitely playing up the uh, the X Apple engineer angle. So they, they, effectively, because that's the that's what I remembered. That's interesting. I wonder I wonder how that plays at the company. Because the other thing too is that the, a part of the reason that very few former Apple engineers or, you know, people at any, you know, who've had any kind of involvement, managers too, they don't talk about their experience at Apple even when they leave is because so many of them go back and they know yeah, that so many of them go yep, back. It's like a revolving door. Right. It's like uh, Steve Jobs, one of the things Steve Jobs did when, when, when he came back to the company is get rid of the uh, sabbatical program. There used to be, I forget how many years, but like every five years you got like, couple months sabbatical uh and he got rid of that because he you know it, it, i forget various reasons but one of them was that an awful lot of the time people would take a sabbatical and then at the end of the sabbatical they'd quit um but there's sort of a de facto sabbatical where if you feel burned out you just quit you can leave and you know as long as you're on good terms it's like the easiest way to get a job at apple is to have been a successful apple employee before i can't tell right. you how many people I know who've left and come back within sometimes a year. Sometimes it's actually pretty quick, sometimes three, four years, but they do. But one of the things you could do that would ruin that would be to, you know, uh, you know, blab about the company in the interim. Yep. No, totally. No, it, it, it's a very like at this point, it's, I mean, everyone kind of knows about it. And I think um, even Apple internally, like they, they, it, it, it's all, it's like, it's totally accepted and, and kind of the assumption, yeah, you get burned out. Uh, yeah, only only at Apple do you get burned out and go work at a startup to relax, and then you come back. Right, it gives you an idea of what the uh, what the what the pace and uh, expectations are. Yeah, but it is you know it's a better. I think it's you know it's an interesting way to do sabbaticals. <laughs> Quit, <laughs> come back. Yeah, I I mean it works for them. I'm not sure that it's something that uh, other companies want to adopt as a. As as a policy, yeah. Did Microsoft have a sabbatical policy? Uh, I don't think so. Um, at least not not that I, not that I remember. Um, I mean, I wasn't I wasn't really there long enough to to have it matter for me. Um, but I I've heard of people taking sabbaticals, but I don't think it was like a formal thing. Right. But I think it was one of those things where if you're you know if you're in good standing and the other the thing with Microsoft is um, in part because of of where they're located. I mean, there there are more and more you know tech jobs in in seattle and, and startups and stuff but in general it's more of a big company town with microsoft and amazon and no one from microsoft wants to work at amazon for the most part um because you know everyone thinks that you know they they work insane hours and don't get paid anything um 
So it's kind of a plus in my from Microsoft. It's a plus in that like there's still a lot of really good employees there. Whereas if they had been in the valley, like you take a company like HP or or Yahoo, especially before Marissa American back, and they just lost they lost so many people. You know, it's just like how do you come back from that? Um, whereas Microsoft, I think uh, one of the advantages of being there is that they, they there's still a lot of like really strong people there. Um, it's a disadvantage though because you get people that are just kind of there and they're not particularly pleased with being there and they're kind of a drag. Um, so it cuts both ways, but, um, in, I think I do recall people, you know, taking some time off and, you know, it, it being okay because they're valuable employees and, you know, and people appreciate that sometimes you need to unplug for a bit. It used to be, I mean, this is ancient history, but it was, you know, when I was getting out of college in 96, I mean, Microsoft was, I don't know, notorious, infamous, Famous for being like the hardest place in the world to get hired. It was, you know, the, it was the they, they I think they practically invented the sort of gimmicky, you know, you know, off the top of your head, how many marbles would fit in a, you know, beer barrel or a Volkswagen bug right. type of interview question. Uh, why? Why is a manhole cover round? And yep, and and also, but tough like whiteboarding questions too for programmers. Yeah, I, I think that that that's probably. I mean, the, any any company that's on top, it tends. I mean, it shifted to Google, right? And it's, uh, you know, some people have the nature where they want to like get on the next big thing. But for a lot of people, the idea of being at the market leader and knowing, you know, that that's that's attractive to a lot of people, and th- those people are valuable too because you need those are the kind of folks that kind of provide long term stability. Because, you know, once once they're set, they're set. I mean, you, you do need the people that are willing to take risks and push forward. But um, it, it's always a balance. And it can create a certain arrogance, though, like an institutional arrogance, because the gist of it is then it creates this. It, it created a culture, I think, where it, the assumption was any you have to be really smart to work at Microsoft. And and therefore, everybody here is like the smartest people in the world. And at the time, Microsoft had this extraordinary success that seemed to back up the idea that the company was staffed with all of the best programmers in the world. Absolutely. No, it, it's definitely a problem. And and it and you get it's a problem on, on a few levels. One, you definitely get arrogance or arrogant. Um two, it also kind of breeds a a little bit of a, a bad culture in that everyone everyone is all it's like the first time a lot of these people have gotten to a place where they're not for sure the smartest person in the room. And so everyone's very eager to show that they are the smartest person in the room. And like people trying to show that they're smart is not conducive to, you know, collaborative, uh, collaborative work or, you know, it, it is conducive to having a very dog eat dog sort of culture, which Microsoft is very famous for. Um, and and I think that's that's probably plays into it. Yeah, I, th- and I think Google is the inheritor of that. I do oh, think- Google. I mean, Google is so much like Microsoft. I mean, right. it just it, in so many respects. I mean, I've written from just from a big picture, like strategic perspective. I think that they're they're right now in a place similar to Microsoft. You know, around around two thousand. Obviously, that's somewhat controversial, but not even that. But just the way they hire, the way they the way they treat employees, their status in the valley, the way people look at them. I mean, for sure, they're they're, they're the inheritor. Even the even, and I think you can agree with that even if you like Google and hate Microsoft or vice versa. Right. And it's it's just a function of being kind of the big dog. And and like of course Apple is is the biggest, quote unquote, from a market perspective, but they've always Apple's always been very 
it's apples of the valley, but they're separate from the valley. Like all the startups and all the people like all look towards Google and people bottom ups after that, just as they previously did Microsoft. And Apple's always been kind of a bit of an aberration um, from a culture perspective, from the a product development perspective. And obviously, you know, there's something to that. Um, and I think it's also and from a personality perspective, I think that the, the, the I mean, and I know I, I think I've talked about this before in the show. I, I know people who have gone between Google and Apple, but not very few. Fewer than any similar companies that I know of. Like they just the two companies tend to draw very, very different personalities. No, for sure. And I think you even see this from a social perspective. Um, you know, I think Apple people tend to hang out with Apple people, whereas Google and and kind of this whole startup culture is much more um much more of a group and goes back and forth. And you see tons of Google, you know, people from Google going in going into going into startups and coming back and stuff like that. And you do see it at Apple, but I think to a much lower degree, I think you, you have more long-term employees at Apple. Um, I mean, I, I, it's hard to say. I mean, we're, we're, we're probably both going off anecdote a bit, but um, I definitely have always felt that, you know, the Valley company is Google. Yeah. Even though Apple's the biggest, just Apple is kind of it's in its own world and kind of always has been. Yeah. I also think personality wise, I think a lot of the people who I've gotten to know at Apple who are very smart though, but they're not the type of smart person who wants to assert that they're the smartest person in the world or in the room that they're, and they'd be happy not to be because they'd think, cool, now I've got these other smarter people. And almost like to, if you want to bring some uh, sports ball into it, it's, you know, what do you do if you've always been the star basketball player, but now you're only the third or fourth best? Are you happy? Right. Because holy, holy shit! Now I've got three guys on the team who are even better than me, and I'll settle into a smaller role, and we're going to win. Or are you, you know, are you upset and going to complain about how many shots you're getting and stuff like that? No, totally. I, and I mean, I'm, I'm, I think of, I'm very vociferous in my, uh, you know, I love the NBA, I love basketball, and one of the reasons I love it is because I think it's, it's a sport that it's one of the hardest sports to kind of figure out right i mean i think we might have talked this last time you know like baseball's at the end kind of a one-on-one game whereas basketball the interaction both on offense and especially on defense is is so important to it and it's and it's not it's not you can't distill it to a spreadsheet it's just one of those there's a lot of feel to it if that makes sense right and with only five players on the court at any time one new player is a significant difference I mean, I think maybe the canonical example would be when um, when King James went to the Heat, and they already had a, a, a lineup of All Star players, and they added, uh, you know, almost inarguably the best player in the league. That's not necess- That wasn't necessarily going to work out. There wasn't, you know, it was certainly a talent in- injection, but it it isn't necessarily. Uh, it wasn't. It wasn't fate that it was going to lead to success. Right, it was so fascinating. Is we're seeing a replay now, right, and and it's arguably going going worse than it did that time. Um, so no, it, it, the, the, with, that the, aspect, with the Cavaliers, yeah, yeah, oh, totally. So the other thing that's interesting about Apple that I've always found very fascinating is, um, if you look at kind of the executive board of most big companies, it's like Stanford, Stanford, MIT, Stanford, Stanford. Um, but that's never been the case for for Apple. I mean, you look at it right now. I mean, you have. Um, you know, Tim Cook went to Auburn, uh, and Angela Aaron's went to, went to Ball State. 
uh, Eddie Q went to uh, Eddie Q went to Duke, which is obviously, um, you know, that that's a prestigious school. But yeah, but it's not a Valley like, school, right? It's not it's not a Valley school. Um, Schiller and, was a uh, Boston College, right? Yeah, I think so. Um, and at it, least he's a, I, well, if he's not, he's for whatever reason, he's a huge fan of their sports. Yeah, I th- I think he is. Um, I, I just quick, I just opened a couple of them here. Um, yeah, University of Massachusetts Amherst, Dan Riccio, uh, Phil Schiller is Boston College. Yeah. Um, and I I think that's uh, Jeff Williams, North Carolina State. I mean, it, like state schools, right? I right. mean, good schools, uh, solid schools, um, but not very different than the than than a lot of the valley and i think i i think it's a big deal i think it matters and um i'm biased in this regard i, mean, I went to a state school uh i mean uh it was no drexel university but um <laughs> drexel uh, is like <laughs> drexel is like the public school for people who are otherwise going to end up in a state school um but uh yeah i think i, I it's i don't know i i i'm not objective in the slightest in this because when i was um when i was game MBA uh the I had a very hard time getting a job and because I had this very kind of non-traditional background I had been living abroad I'd teaching English um traveling the world stuff like that and lots of companies were like people telling me oh it's very interesting but I would never make the cut for an interview if I got a first interview I'd never make it to a second one even if I thought the interview went very well um and kind of the one exception was was Apple uh where everything went fantastically got in you know relatively you know quite easily and and uh, the interviewer told me right off the bat or and i was fortunate because the like the interviewer was sick so i interviewed with the hiring director like my first interview so that probably accelerated things but she's like um like i wanted to hire you since i your resume because it it was so off the wall like that's that's the sort of person that we're looking for and you go there and you meet lots of people and i believe it because most of the people i met yeah, there were some Stanford people and there were some, you know, MIT people and stuff like that. But uh, a lot of people had really weird backgrounds and did lots of strange stuff. And they were super smart, but they were the weird, weird people smart. And uh, I think that's I, I don't think that's an accident. Yeah, uh, I know a lot of engineers at Apple or at least a couple. I shouldn't say a lot. I know a couple at least who don't have any degree at all. Um, and I would say I know a lot who have degrees in things other than computer science, you know, yeah, physics, a lot of physics. I, I mean, I, I don't know how many both indie and people at Apple, uh, uh, you know, people who went to school for physics and were programming on the side and then just got sucked into it. And it just was irrelevant to their job prospects at Apple that they didn't have a computer science degree or, you know, whatever school wasn't there a thing in Nick Carlson's new book on, on Marissa Meyer where she was, uh, I forget who she was dismissive of because she didn't have a college degree. I, I don't remember. I've, I haven't read it yet. I've only read, yeah, read the excerpts. There was um, something, though, where she was, you know, she sort of just turned her nose up at somebody else just because the person had didn't have a college degree. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I, I mean, for, by all, by all, you know, Google is, is kind of notorious for having a very strong bias towards, um, you know, towards your degree and your GPA in particular, if you're from Stanford. And right. I think a lot in a lot of the Valley is, and it's one of those things where I think the problem with it is, is it raises the floor for who you hire. Like you're going to get someone that's smart and capable, but anytime you raise the floor, you're also lowering the ceiling because you're kind of constraining 
uh, constrain your options. And if someone fits in a box, like you're not going to get out of the box thinking. I mean, it's, it's and I think Apple, at least in my personal experience and from people that I saw there and from what I talked to, and this is something that we did talk about in Apple University, like the way Apple thinks about hiring, um, putting much more value on non-school stuff. And, yeah. and, and if they're smart and if they're kind of weird and they've done interesting things, then that's someone that we're interested in. Um, and if they spent their whole day going going to schools and having a high GPA, it might be useful, but um, it's almost more of a more of a challenge in some respects. Yeah. Um, the other thing too, and you like that whole like asserting who's the smartest person in the room. Like I've heard this from other people too, but this is like even personal experience. Like way back when, probably close to ten years ago. Like well, like eight years ago. When I was at Joint, we had a meeting with Apple. Uh, just uh, hey, we, you know, we're interested in what you guys are working on. This is when Joint was not a hosting company. When we were doing like a web-based uh, email calendar, contacts, notes, syncing type thing. Uh, and it was a you know it was a pleasant meeting. It was you know maybe like 30, 40 minutes. Uh, but it was like the opposite of anybody trying to assert who was the smartest. All they wanted to do was listen. That's it. They had they had questions, but there was absolutely no. It was the opposite. It was almost like creepy how much they were just observing and listening to us, and revealing nothing about themselves. Yeah. Well, if you I mean, if you want to get into like uh, wait, read way too much into this, like we probably already are. But if you want to, if you want to take it. Full, full speed ahead. Um, one of the best things about being an intern at Apple is they have this like this intern lecture series where basically the executive team, different members of the executive team, for lunch they come in for an hour and they and they talk. Some 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 just talk the whole time. Some give presentations. Others just do Q and A. So it was. I mean, so you got an hour with Steve Jobs, got an hour with Tim Cook, got an hour with Phil Schiller, like Ron uh, Ron uh, with Ron Johnson. Like it was an incredible experience. Like worth the internship alone. Um, but uh, there was one that was really interesting because this person came in and he was obviously the smartest person in the room. And he was also determined to make sure that everyone knew he was the smartest person in the room. Is this I'll, person no longer at the company? I'll give you one guess as to who this person was. I'm guessing it was Scott Forstall. Uh, it was it was like I I walked out of the meeting and I told and I told a friend of mine and we we we, we talked about this like after he left Apple like we because we talked about it right afterwards like it was so it was jarring, um I mean the, he was so clearly brilliant um but it, it like his it, it was just a, such a turnoff to listen to him talk um especially relative to to some of the other executives and um and if you want to get you know if we're gonna really piss off all the Stanford listeners but yeah there's your Stanford guy, um. And, uh, and, um, I don't know, like I wasn't, it was one of those things where when he left, I was shocked, but I was not surprised, uh, because of that, that lecture that I heard from him. Well, I mean, there wasn't just that there was, I mean, I'd heard stuff. Uh, I knew that it was, I mean, I I knew that he was a a difficult person to, to work with just through the grapevine. But, um, I, I, the truth is I think Apple misses him to be honest. Uh, but I, I, I also was not was not surprised yeah i agree with that i do too and i think it's easy like i laughed and said i knew who it was and i did know i instantly guessed it was it was forced all but 
I think he's an extremely complicated figure, and I think explaining his role in Apple's success over the last 15 years is extremely complicated, and there's absolutely no way to paint it in either black or white and say oh. he is missed, they suck without him, or it was an easy no-brainer to get rid of him, good riddance to bad rubbish. It is so so many different and i wouldn't even say gray it's just so many interweaved streaks of black and white absolutely you know, good and part I, bad part good part bad part good part bad part no he's i mean he is he's on the top five list of people most responsible for apple being where it is today yeah. i think part of it was that i think he always had and i don't you know again i met him once you know after a keynote and we had like a half hour discussion and it was great and he was it was just me and him shooting the shit in the hands-on area and uh he was you know clearly a reader of my site very complimentary to my work and we just talked about some cool stuff uh and it, you know, it was no showy offy stuff at all. It was just, you know, but he was very, very brilliant. It was actually around the time of, uh, t was it 2010? Might have been like WWDC 2010. iPhone what? 4. Yeah, iPhone 4. Yes, iPhone 4. And the iPad was like four months old. Yep. And a lot of this stuff where, um, I was going to say kids, but it's actually just about everybody, but especially kids with autism and and problems like that were found to be doing sensational stuff communication-wise with uh, iPhones and now with the big iPad, which really helps with fine motor control because they were bigger targets, that it was a huge thing. He was so amazingly engaged on that. And this, you know, that is not like a, hey, how to make the company another $10 billion, you know, it's clearly a small segment of the overall market for iPads and iPhones, but he was super, super engaged on it and thought that we had this cool discussion about how the, a lot of the things that they designed, not think they, you know, all these things fell out of things that they just thought were cool for regular people, but it ends up being, um, you know, super great for people with autism, but it's, it's this whole, the, you know his his conclusion he you know said that they were looking into it to try to prove it to you know not just do it as a hunch but that it's just about a leave you know eliminating a layer of abstraction that that whole thing where you move a mouse which moves an arrow on the screen and you do it you know once you get used to using computers you know you just forget about it but that people with autism can never get past it that it's this abstraction that just their brains don't make the connection and when they can put their finger right on that button on screen and tap it, it's it's not just like a little bit easier. It's the difference between unable to make the connection and completely able to make the connection. And that not other people who can use a mouse and don't have any sort of impairment like that, they you know, they might they, they don't really think about the fact that the iPad's a lot easier or the iPhone's a lot easier, but that it ends up that subconsciously without thinking about it it is and it actually is why they prefer using it uh, no i i think it was I, a great I, conversation and and the gist of it was just he just was talking it was just me and him talking and it was great and he i, I thought he was great and i also know also now I'll just add the other thing is that there are a ton of people ton of people who worked under him at apple who loved him love and loved working under him he was demanding but that it was he was absolutely not uh, he was his problems he was fair. Were, 
Uh, and well, and the other thing too that I heard time and time again was that people who worked under him always had the sense that he had their back. Right, right. That's what I was getting at. Yeah. No, totally. And, the, the other thing is that I, I actually think I, I'm not sure, but I think in that talk, I think he actually did talk a lot. It was the same summer, 2010, that I was there. And so maybe it was on his mind. But I think he talked a lot about the accessibility stuff. And I, I think, I'm not sure, but I think I've heard that he was really the driving force for iOS being so advanced when it came to like accessibility, like for the blind and for, I, well, and it was for stuff like cer- that. Certainly was a complete advocate for it, like a total advocate. He may not have been the sole driving force, but he put his full advocacy behind it. Uh, just in general, I mean, I, I really think like and this is where I... Well, I think Apple misses him in two parts. I think one is is like uh, his ability to um, like I I I I do think that iOS was incredibly rel- given given what it was was not buggy at all and was really you know it was really good. Um, I I, I think it, there's a discussion we had about some of the quality stuff, but two, I think he had a real passion and. Uh, push for usability and accessibility not not just for like disabled but for normal people and like and so much of the original iphone os that was so natural and so obvious uh and that obviousness it's obvious when you use it but it's not obvious when you design it right it requires tons of iteration and tons of pushback and doing it again and again and certainly jobs was was the head of this and the and pushed for this but this was where this was where, in particular, I think Forstall really channeled Jobs, and certainly iOS and I would say, you know, especially now once we're used to them, look much better than the old iPhone OS. But I still think there's lots of areas where they're more difficult to use, and more difficult in a not in that they're less obvious, um, and I, and that's I, something that I think is missing still. I think a way that you get there is not so much being able to find the truly simple, uh, seemingly obvious way to do it. It's more of the refusal to accept uh, the complicated, the complex, the, this isn't, it isn't clear how you do it, but you, you know, you, you start, you think, Hey, you know, here's how we'll lay out the new calendar app for iOS eight and we'll do this and this, and it sounds good and you build it and then you use it. And it's like, uh, but I'm kind of confused. Like, how do I just show a list of events? And eventually though, you kind of get used to it and you can just say, well, you can do everything. Uh, now I've been testing it long enough. I know it good enough. Let's ship it. Whereas I think Forstall, And again, like you said, channeling jobs had an ability to say, this isn't good enough. This is shit. We've got to start over this. You know, this can't be tweaked. We can't just move a button here. We've got to throw this out because the whole thing is just not brain dead clear. Yeah, it's so hard. Oh, sorry. Well, it's just you could get you can just talk yourself into accepting something that's not quite clear. Well, it's when so hard. It's so hard when you're immersed. Yeah, when you're immersed in it, it's so hard to look at something through the eyes of a new user or a novice user. Like that's a that's a truly like a skill and a gift um, that very few people, including myself, I think you know have because you're just used to it, and so it becomes a blind spot. Yeah. Um. I guess I take a break right here. Thank our first sponsor and. Uh, it's our good friends at Fracture. You guys remember Fracture. Fracture is the company that you send them your photos. They print your photos directly on pieces of glass, not on a piece of paper, 
that's under glass and put in a frame. They, I don't know what they do. They've got some kind of proprietary technology. It's amazing. They print your photo right on the glass. Um, the effect in person is like the analog equivalent of these modern retina displays where the, the LCD is laminated to the touch sensor, where it looks like the pixels are right on the glass. That's what your photo looks like when you get it back from Fracture. Really, really cool. Um, they have a whole bunch of sizes, everything from small square ones to really, really big ones. Um, and they ship them in these amazing, it's almost worth ordering your first thing from Fracture just to see how they ship them because the box is the frame, is the stand. It's all sort of integrated and there's like a total minimal amount of wasted cardboard. Um, but when you get it out, if you want to hang it on a wall or you want to prop it up on your desk, all that stuff is all built in um, to what you get. So you don't need to take this thing and then put a frame around it or put it in a frame or do anything like that. Everything you need to, like, say, hang it on a wall or prop it up on your desk is all built in to the packaging. Uh, really cool looking. So you can do it, and then it's borderless. So it just is a, just has a great effect, very, very aesthetically pleasing on your desk or... Uh, on your wall. And the quality is just top notch. I really, really love the way pictures look from this. It's a great gift. Um, if you haven't tried it yet, you're, you're nuts. It's a really, really good way. And, you know, I think th their big pitch, you know, is that as we go more and more digital, 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 digital with our photography, we lose touch of the, almost the humanity of getting analog prints of your family and friends and, uh, you know, events from your life that you want to remember. And the way that we used to in the old days, all the best photos we had were, of course, analog because that's all we had. And you had them hanging on your wall or on your desk or on your mantle. Um, so it's a great way to, to do that. Take your best pictures, get them printed out, and uh, there's no better way to do it than Fracture. So where do you go to find out more? Well, their website is at... Fracture, F-R-A-C-T-U-R-E, me.com, FractureMe.com. And they have a special code just for listeners of the show, Daring Fireball, all one word, Daring Fireball. You'll save five bucks off your order if you use that code, Daring Fireball. So my thanks to Fracture. Um, go get some pictures. So you mentioned the... Um the, like the analog nature of photos. Did you see that that iPhone app that basically uh, it, it lets you take it, it lets you take a picture, but it doesn't show you the picture if you've taken it. No. And and once you've taken twenty four pictures, you can pay to have them mailed to you, like printed out. Oh no, I did see something about this. This was like maybe maybe a couple weeks ago. Yeah, I think it's it's called White Album. I think I I was just did a quick search Wh for it. White um, Album. I, I think so. Um. Yeah. White White whitealbumapp.com uh surprised the beatles didn't have something to say about that <laughs> on an apple device no less wow that sounds terrible <laughs> yeah it, it, it was it's interesting because like i, I thought it was interesting because lots of people on twitter are like oh this is so great it's so wonderful and it's like yeah are you sure about that <laughs> it's one of those things that it sounds great when you tweet it i'm not sure it'd be very great in actual real life right i and i also feel that there's something about a digital viewfinder, even though the 
iPhone viewfinder is, you know, using your iPhone as a viewfinder and holding it up and looking at it is so much bigger than what you'd see with like an analog, an old analog film camera when you'd look through the eyepiece. But because it's a sensor, there's something about it that makes it harder to frame exactly what you want. I don't know. I, I feel like if I tried this, I would not take as good of pictures as I would if I were using my old 35 millimeter SLR looking through the viewfinder where you, I know I can't chimp and look at the pictures as I take them. But I feel like I would get better pictures that way because I'm looking through an actual analog viewfinder and there's no lag whatsoever. No, I agree. And it, actually, I, I was just thinking about it when I use my my SLR, like I I. I don't look at the photo I took most of the time unless I'm like worried about the exposure or something. Right. Like, unless you notice something really weird, like, man, this is, there's such strong backlighting. Like these people, you know, there's no way to get on the other side of them and the sun is behind them. You know, I want to double check that this isn't just going to show up as a silhouette. Right. Exactly. Exactly. It's usually I take it and then I'll, I'll look at it whenever I, you know, put them in a light, light room or whatever. I used to get frustrated. I don't even, I can't remember the last time I launched it, I, but I used to use Hipstamatic a lot because I thought they, for a while, I thought they had the best filters by far. Um, but Hipstamatic had, a, they were halfway in that regard where they they didn't let you apply filters to photos you'd already taken and they didn't let you change the filters on photos you'd taken. You had to set your gimmicky fake lens and your gimmicky fake film and then whatever you took, you got. Oh, interesting. I never, I never really used it. Yeah, it, it and it, I, it, it's you know, it, and it was all in the name of this sort of, well, for lack of a better term, skeuomorphic pretending that your that the Hipstamatic app was a film camera, uh, you know, and if different lens, com you know, you can, might find a film you really like, and then you put a different lens on, and it gives it a slightly. I think the, I think that the the films always had the strongest effect on the filtering, and the lens was a little secondary, but you could get different effects, but you couldn't see until after you took a photo. And it was, you know, and if you took one and it was like, it, it you're, it, you had it set up to look really good outside on a sunny day and the pictures were nice and warm and had a nice, you know, not gimmicky filtery look, but just, you know, an aesthetically pleasing look. And then you went indoors and the same combination looked bad. You were like so many taps and turning the camera around and switching the film. It was, uh, it was crazy. Like, why yeah. not just let me do this after I've taken the photos? It's interesting to think about that with, um, with Instagram, right? Because you, you on, on like an, an initial pass, you would think that they're going to be, oh, they're, they're in the same category. But what, I mean, Instagram is is an amazing app and service because it, it's it's really forward. And what I mean by that is like Instagram, it was kind of the first really pure, we were built for a mobile phone. And Part of that's in the workflow, like you can just take a picture and then you apply the filter. And yeah, you may be apply, applying a Kishi skeuomorphic type filter, but it fits with the way you actually take pictures on a phone. Yeah, and, and then the, and then just beyond that, the actual service, you know, only really working on a phone and having a bare bones website at best for a very long time. Even today, it's pretty bare bones. Uh, it, like they've they've always been a mobile first company that is that is built around the phone with the assumption that you're going to use your phone. And I think that's a big part of why, you know, they've been so successful. Yeah. On the aesthetic side, there's no doubt Instagram, I wouldn't call it a ripoff. I, I would just say that, that they ate hipstamatics lunch where there was so much that they, that they just took from hipstamatic, the, the square, the only size, the only, the only size you can, or ratio you can have is square. Um, 
Hipstomatic has has had, I don't know, uh, the the fake borders to make, you know, some of the films, depending on what film you had, had like uh, Polaroid style borders, which if you recall, Instagram had for like the first couple of years of its existence. Right. Um, you know, the basic the basic look like like not just, you know, that the films tended to look like old analog uh, instant films. All of that, you know, Instagram just borrowed from Hipstamatic or followed Hipstamatic's lead. Right. Um, but they did that in a better way because they it, they took advantage of they they did all the things aesthetically that made people like that look. They you know that's all the you know just the pleasure it gives you to have photos from your camera that look like that and that make you know just look cool uh, or look better or whatever you want to say look hipper. Um, with none of the none of the goofy restrictions that hipstamatic imposed in the name of just pure hipsterism, you know the whole once you've set a filter, you know you have to take the fil the photo with the filter, and if you don't like it, tough, take another photo. Whereas Instagram would let you pick camera images from your camera roll, they would let you change the filter if you'd already taken it in Instagram, etc. And then, you know, multiply that by a hundredfold by having the genius of turning it into a Twitter-like social network. Right. I mean, well, that's, that's you know, but it's all part of it. I mean, if I think that if they had launched without filters at all, it would have taken a lot longer. It may not have taken off. Well, that, that, that's what's so brilliant about about Instagram as a social network is they, they there was a reason to use Instagram from day one, even if you didn't have any friends. And that that's what's so hard about getting any social network off the ground is is just finding people or discovering people. And even Twitter today has this problem where people get on there and they don't really have many followers and now Twitter's cut off from the Facebook, you know, kind of connection feed. Uh, and it's like, so I'm just like farting in the wind here, like who's listening to what I have to say. Whereas with Instagram, like you're getting value, you can get value from Instagram even if you have zero followers. Yeah, and even if, even if your Instagram feed is more or less just your own photos for now nobody's looking at them there you can send you know email them and keep them and you know right you and, just, and it's just because of the filters i mean because right. they're they're cool and they, and they look neat and and no i agree the other thing is just in general and you i think you just said something along these lines is appreciating a product is so much more than just like the actual like like instagram is successful yeah maybe they they borrowed the the filter concept and a lot of was very similar to hipstamatic, but that's not an, it's very easy to get stuck on that in like comparing companies or comparing products and all this sort of stuff. But you have to think about the whole, th like the whole thing is the product. It, it's, it's all of it. And even, even with Instagram, you can argue like is they have a, how they're going to make money in the future in the long run, that's going to be part of the product. And like, it's much more, there's all these different facets that go into it. And sure, some companies or products may be similar on one facet, but they may be very different other ones. And maybe those different things that end up making the difference. Do you have any insight on this? A couple of weeks ago, Dan Fromer was on the show and he, it's been so long that I have almost forgotten the complaint that Instagram still doesn't have an iPad app. I do actually. Uh, I, I, I think it's, I think it's okay. I mean, I, I understand I understand the the objection, but it, I think it comes back to Instagram being, um, being a, a phone first app. Like that, that's where like so. Just from a very kind of narrow perspective, uh, I think Instagram still sees more benefit from working on improving their phone apps than they do on building building an iPad app. One, um, two. 
the problem, I mean, now that people use iPads as cameras, this, this isn't as quite as strong an idea. But I think this, what's compelling about Instagram is I think Instagram more than almost Instagram is like Facebook in that there is a very solid balance between creating content and consuming content. Whereas uh, Twitter, I think a lot of people might just consume it. They don't really put stuff out there. Um, whereas Instagram, like people use it to make stuff and they use it to get stuff. And yeah, but here... I think, but I, I almost think it's an outdated view of the iPad, though. Like, I think in a lot of ways, and especially when it comes to photography, the iPad is a lot more big iPhone than, than tablet laptop. I do think so, and especially for, um, you know, for a certain segment of the, of the population. I mean, it's my mom's primary camera. I mean, I, you, you'd like to go an entire podcast without mentioning your mom, but literally it's my mom's primary, primary yeah, camera. Yeah, there's too many people like that. I, you know, every time I go to, I used to, I used to make a note and I used to even like when we'd go to Disney World, uh, like a year or two ago, I would just snap photos of people using tablets as, as cameras just as like a like a thing to do while walking around the park and i didn't publish them anywhere to make fun of them but i just had them privately and see how many how many photos of people using a tablet as a camera could i rack up in a day um and my son you know my son used to laugh that it was that's the stupidest hobby to have at disney world ever um <laughs> you know but i could usually get like 20 in a day and then i would just delete them all um it's not you couldn't even do it anymore you'd you'd never you wouldn't be able to get from point a to point b it's it's as common as seeing somebody using a phone as a camera. And there's too too many people who, you know, they just don't see the distinction. Like, I don't even see people. I, and when I first tried to get off, I, I tried to get off my own high horse about making fun of people using tablets as cameras, maybe like a year ago or so, um, I'd still get pushback from like listeners of the show and they'd be like, oh, come on, it's stupid looking. And now I don't even get that. Everybody, it's just sunk in. And I feel like it's almost ridiculous for an app that's photocentric like Instagram not to be native on what is for a lot of people their primary camera. And then for the consumption side, consuming photos, it's always better to be bigger. So it would, you know, to look at your friend's photos, it's always going to look bigger on the bigger on the biggest device you, you know you can use. No, that's fair. I, I like, I, and I think your point is right that the that that justification may have made sense, but it makes increasingly less sense. That's that said, they they, I mean, they're a part of Facebook. They they have access to numbers and where what people are using right. and where they're using it. So the I would other, imagine it's a it's not a uninformed decision. Yeah, and the third factor is that it's different. I think in the iOS eight era with the two phone with the new phones because. The difference between making an iPad app and an iPhone app is nowhere near as different as it used to be. Like it's it's really more in with these if you're doing it the right way, uh, if you can support the multiple iPhone sizes, there's almost no reason you shouldn't be supporting the iPad too. It's yeah. the same thing. It's no longer two big things. It's these different you know what do they call them scaling factors or whatever. To the scaling, though, I think there is a resolution issue. Um, I know some people have raised that as a possible reason as well. Like the Instagram photos are just super low resolution and might look like crap on the iPad. Yeah, I don't. Then think again, this good. this is this is a company that got off the ground by you know utilizing like the iPhone three G camera. So, <laughs> who knows? right, yeah. So my guess is it's coming, but it's it's almost it's almost a you know it's almost like they're doing it on purpose at this point because they do support the native iPhone six sizes and six plus, 
Um, you know, and I would suggest as as an iPad app, just you know, they, I, I think that's an app where you don't have to, you know, the uh, just a just a just a natively scaled version of the iPhone app would be just fine. You don't have to redesign it or relay it out or do something different. Oh, I mean, their website is basically a a scaled up version of the iPhone app. Like it's yeah. it's literally just like a column of photos that that might as well be the app put on a put on a web page. Yeah, I think the more I my guess is the explanation is that I think that you know they're a very conservative company. Like this is a weird thing for a four year old what five year old startup that is part of Facebook and that has you know gone from thirteen people to you know a billion dollar acquisition to a multi-billion dollar asset uh in just a handful of years you know usually you don't think of such companies as being conservative but they are they're very very conservative in my opinion we can always design wise you can already see the you can arguably see the conservatism in the fact that they sold out so early right and you know uh yeah i would say that's actually part of the conservatism and i would say the biggest sign of it is just how close what they have today is to what they shipped with the first day like it's it you know they've definitely added a bunch of features and they've rewritten the filters um but it's more or less the same thing yeah i mean you would be somebody who got to who like on the day that instagram came out uh for iphone and just instant bought it or you know and you have to buy it just downloaded it got into it and said i love this i love this instagram thing and just you know consumed the whole app understood the whole thing and if you took today's instagram to that person five years ago four years ago whatever it is they would be right at home they would have like two or three new things to like oh that's cool but that's it no it's it's a good point there's very few companies that you can say that about yeah well i mean it gets to the genius of the, the genius of the of the of the whole entire concept too right think about how different twitter today is like logging into twitter.com and what you're exposed to compared to what you were you know five years ago it's very different um what else is in the news before we get to big picture stuff see box had their ipo today they did and uh it popped very nicely uh which is i think great for them i i kind of suspect that they they underpriced a little on purpose um just because there's been so much there's been a bit of a cloud around the company for the last year which is not which is not a good thing to have if you're trying to sell into very large enterprises and assure them that you're going to, you can hold on to all their data and for the long run. Um, whereas now I think they're going to come out of this and there's going to be a ton of good news. Uh, you know, wow, you know, what a fantastic, the market loves them. And I think it's going to be really good for them from a, just a sales and momentum perspective. So, and I, I wouldn't be, susp- I wouldn't, I wouldn't be surprised if they kind of knew they would probably be leaving some money on the table, but, um, but that they deemed kind of the the shift in perception that this will result in to be to be worth it. Yeah, the psychology of an IPO is so weird because it's like ideally in some sense you want to price your IPO at, at exactly what the market is going to value it at because otherwise you're leaving money on the table. But then you're from your investor's perspective there's a financial drive to underprice your IPO so that all of those investor shares, you know, go up in value once the market prices it. You know, I, I think, and I think it, I think it, I think it matters because the people you take, like, uh, take Facebook versus Twitter. Like Facebook basically didn't pop at all, and then over time it actually went down. And and there's a lot of people who look at it from a narrow perspective and say, well, Facebook did it just right; they captured every available cent. And and then they look at Twitter, and Twitter 
had a huge pop and they're like, oh, Twitter screwed up. They left a lot of money on the table. But I think if you actually look at it, like Facebook was under a ton of pressure right after their IPO. And I think they were constrained, like strategically. Like I, I, I suspect that um, Facebook should have bought Waze, for example, the mapping app. But I think that one reason they didn't is they couldn't really justify spending over a billion dollars when they were under so much pressure from from investors because that was the kind of the height of like Facebook is doomed mania where their stock had dipped to like a, a, a third of what what it IPO would at uh, yeah. or a half or whatever. Whereas yeah. Twitter, Twitter, arguably Twitter has kind of been a disaster since they IPO would almost every earnings call has been been worse than the last yet. Yes, there's pressure and there's been a lot of uh, talk about Costello and stuff like that this year in particular, but I don't think it's been uh, nearly to the degree that it Twitter probably deserves, to be perfectly honest. And I think part of that is because the stock is still up from the IPO like that. It, it like and so you look at it. Yeah, the stock's down from its high, but it's still higher than when it IPO would at. I think that 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 matters. And if whereas if Twitter was down like Facebook was down and had way worse fundamentals than Facebook ever had, um, man, like the, the sky would be falling to a much greater degree than it is right now. Yeah. And there's also some like the incalculable part is the PR value of an IPO that pops, as you say. Absolutely. Uh, absolutely. Like Net, Net, uh, Netscape is, you know, maybe the canonical example. I don't know. I mean, but that it, it, it gave the sense that Netscape was the future. You know, that, that, you know, however much money they left on the table because the IPO popped on day one um, was worth, I don't know, I think tens of millions of dollars in the perception of, you know, holy shit, there's a new tech industry titan in town. Uh, absolutely. And it, it matters for it matters for hiring. It matters for morale. And it matters for like, it like I mean, the stock market, a lot of it is about perception. and Right. It's the popping is like, oh, my God, everybody else thinks this company is going to kick ass. Right, and, 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 and that sticks with you. Like, and so, like, when you, it matters when, like, it the bad news doesn't matter. The way people perceive the bad news is what matters. And if people come at it with the assumption that this is a valuable company that people are excited about, then it's like, oh, that's okay. They'll they'll get over it. Whereas if it's a this company, man, everyone's down on it, and then a piece of bad news comes out, it's like, oh man, this is terrible. And like I said, I think you saw that with Facebook, which uh, in retrospect, it was ridiculous. Uh, you know, I mean, the, the, now the now the stock is is well up from its IPO stage, but th- it took. It took a lot longer than it should have for kind of the the perception of Facebook to change, and arguably, I think even in the valley, I I, I feel like Facebook is is still serially underappreciated for what a force it is. Not just not just uh, as as a service and an app, but as a financial as a, as a business. Yeah, I agree with that. I and I think it's. Uh, it, it's funny because as complicated as Facebook itself as a product is, in my opinion, it's a pretty simple story financially. It's, you know, they sell a lot of ads into the feed and they make people pay to get placement. And because everybody uses it, uh, it's worth it. And therefore, you know, the money's growing, you know, whereas Twitter is a much simpler product. And any kind of argument they try to make as to how they're going to make money is it, I, my eyes roll back in my head and I fall asleep because I don't understand. 
Yeah, there, I mean, there there is something to that. I mean, I think the the, I mean, the Facebook ad unit is like the best ad unit in in like in tech. I mean, it's like people are looking at that feed multiple times a day, every day, more and more. And if in a Facebook ad takes over your entire screen. It might only be for a few seconds, but for a few seconds, like your entire screen is filled with an ad, which on the web was never the case. Like the, the ads were always off to the side. They were accompanying stuff. And so they were easy. They were much easier to to ignore. And no, it's super compelling. What the other thing is interesting though is you say you say Twitter is simple. I almost wonder if this is a like we talked about with with, with when we talk about Forstall, like we're used to it and it it feels simple and 140 characters seem simple. But then you start trying to explain to people like, oh, don't start your tweet with an at mention, or uh, some people still use RT or MT. Like there's all these right. kind of conventions that actually Twitter's <laughs> Twitter's pretty complicated and and there's a lot of stuff. Like I think the last really smart thing Twitter did from a product perspective was the native retweet, um, because that did simplify yeah. a convention. And there's so much other stuff that's cruft that's risen up, like these multi tweets or the tweet storms and, and like all this and attaching photos to to an image like that. I, the the company I find it's so frustrating because they're doing all this stuff and they're buying these things and they're we're gonna do developer tools and all this sort of crap when it's like there's so much low hanging fruit just from a product perspective and from an onboarding perspective which is still a disaster. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah, I know what you mean. It's it it comes. I think it can come across. It comes across even to my eyes as very jargony, like computer jargony with all the RTs and MTs and. Honestly, even I think people get the at username and it's certainly one of the I think it's the most powerful asset Twitter has. I really do is the fact that when you turn on TV, it doesn't matter whether it's politics or uh, sports. It's like the people who are on TV, they tell you their name and they tell you their Twitter handle. Yep. And people get that. And that is super valuable. Uh but I think, and combine that with hashtags, and to me, the whole thing it comes across looking very jargony. Yeah. I mean, I, I could, we could do the whole rest of the show on my feelings on hashtags. But I know, I realize they've taken off, and I realize that people somewhat get them, and that regular people do use them. But I do feel that it contributes to a visual jargoniness when you, especially for new users, where you're, you know, you look at this stuff and you see all these weird punctuation characters, you know, and it starts to look like programming code. And the weird shorthands like RT and MT and stuff like that. Yeah. No, I, I think um, I, I think we might have talked about Twitter my very first time on the show, but um, I'm still I, I I'm still like they're, now they're messing with the timeline. Like there's well, you were gone and stuff. I, I honestly think like the timeline is such at this point as so much cruft associated with it. It's fantastic for all of us who who are familiar with Twitter and used to it. But uh, I, I, it's pretty intimidating for a new user, and I, I wish they would re-embrace lists and like have channels and the idea that like, you could like a new user should be able to come on during the World Cup and dip into the World Cup channel without having to like you don't want to like what's you don't want to follow uh, people in the World Cup every day of the year. You just want to dip yeah. in and dip out, and there's no dip in and dip out experience for a new user on Twitter right now. Yeah, I think, and I think it kind of gets into some of the stuff that Evan Williams has was writing about and talking about in the last couple of weeks. You know, with the whole uh, when when Instagram passed Twitter in terms of I forget the metric monthly average users, monthly active or users, yeah, active users. And he was like, I don't give a shit how many monthly active users Instagram has. 
you know, and he has a great argument. And it's, you know, the line can be taken out of context and make it look like he's arrogant or whatever. And you read his, his you know, essay on it on Medium, and it's v- unsurprisingly for Evan Williams, very, very thoughtful. And he's right. And it's, you know, when there's, you know, Twitter has important uses that you just would never do on, on Instagram, like when there were the the uprising in Egypt and stuff like that. And people use hashtags to get the news out. And it, you know, breaking news and stuff like that happens in a way on Twitter uh, that there's no equivalent on any other service. Uh, the stuff in Ferguson's, uh, you know, the St. Louis uh, um, demonstrations and stuff like that all had a, a, a part on Twitter. I mean, I think that it's Twitter is central to the way that the the protesters have organized for things like that. And there's, it's just unique. But I feel like the thing that Twitter, Twitter though, you know, Evan Williams doesn't run Twitter anymore. And I feel like the problem is that Twitter has gotten at a, at a leadership level, gotten caught up in that sort of Facebook-esque monthly average users as an important metric, which has tied them up because I feel like what Twitter's natural place is for most people is far more about consumption than about actually tweeting. No, right. Whereas, whereas Facebook is all about everybody sharing all of their stuff with their people, you know, with their friends and family and stuff like that. Whereas I think the problem is, well, what am I supposed to tweet? Maybe you're not supposed to tweet anything. Maybe you're just supposed to, you know, like you said, get on a list or follow a hashtag for the World Cup or for your favorite team or for uh, some sort of news event that you're interested in and just follow along. And, you know, maybe it's like a hobby that you want to follow all the time, or maybe it's just, I just want to follow the Super Bowl until next Sunday. Yep. No, but I, I don't, you don't want to contribute anything. You're not tweeting. You're just following along. No, what I said when that happened in the Instagram thing, like my take was like, I'm really sad that Twitter didn't buy Instagram mainly because it, if they had Instagram would make all the money and Twitter could just be Twitter. Yeah, because I mean, Instagram Instagram is going to make billions of dollars. I mean, it, it, it's it's like Facebook, but even better. Like you're going to scroll through your photos. There's going to be ads in there and you're going to do it anyway because you're addicted to it. And it, and it, it's it, it's such it's so it's so obvious. And Twitter I'm surprised. I'm surprised we don't see more ads in Instagram. I don't know if I've ever seen one. They, and I know that they announced it, and I know that they had some demo versions of it, but I've still I I check it almost every day, and I can't remember seeing an ad in Instagram. No, it's it, it's still like a very limited sort of trial. It's one of those things where Facebook doesn't need to. Like Facebook is making so much money right now that they can, I mean, they can spend billions of dollars on whatever they want to, and not and not monetize. And it's I almost I almost think it's it's smart, not just from a. They want to do it the right way, but it's smart from a they can always turn that faucet on if they need to. Um, And and like, what's the rush? The stock market loves them. They're flying high. They they have like pretty much they're as independent as an independent company can be for the most part. I mean, just from a one, the stock market loves them and two, Zuckerberg controls everything anyway. Um, So from that perspective, you know, what's what's the rush? Right. And the gist of it is I, you know, I, I don't know. I agree with you. I'm surprised we just haven't seen it yet. I, you know, or just because I feel like the way to do it is, a, you know, the old uh, slowly boiled frog, you know, start them slow and then slowly dial it up to where you want it to be. But you got to start at some point. Yeah. Uh, but which they have. But I, I think they are going slower than they need to just because they can. Right. Um. 
you see Tim Quick? Tim Cook tweeted, uh, congratulations on the box. Yeah, uh, that was surprising. <laughs> and I take note of that, uh, you know, in my, because uh, Tim Cook tweets, and I'm almost dead certain that it's actually him doing the tweeting. Um, but he doesn't tweet very often. Right. And so it's usually worth noting. And I know he tweeted earlier in the week, or I guess it's almost a week ago now, uh, uh, for Martin Luther King Day holiday here in the u.s and, and you know he's uh, repeatedly you know his two heroes are martin luther king and and uh robert kennedy so no surprise that he would tweet something like that I'll, you know a nice thing for apple ceo to tweet but not necessarily newsworthy but him tweeting to you know box on an ipo is to me a little interesting Totally. There's, I mean, from what I've seen on Twitter, there's been a fair bit of speculation already, and not speculation, just more like raised eyebrows. Yeah, I don't know. I kind of feel like it's, you know, it, it, an IPO. One thing about an IPO is it certainly it doesn't mean that Box is not going to be acquired by somebody else, but it certainly makes it a lot less likely. And, you know, I think Apple is happier in a world where more companies like box IPO and stay independent satellites of the, you know, the mammoth Titans like Microsoft and Facebook and Google, than a world where every company that gets to that size and stability gets acquired by somebody. Absolutely. I think because Apple's not going to do those acquisitions, right? Apple's never going to be the one that, that acquires a lot of companies. And therefore, it means that most of those companies would be going into uh, companies that are more like competitors to Apple, like Google or Microsoft or Facebook or, you know, what have you. No, that, that's how I read it. That, I read that's it a great, as, that's a really great. That's, I think that's exactly it. That's how I read it, because I feel like Apple can, you know, happily and wholeheartedly partner with Box on things like the, you know, the extent, you know, the file sharing integration in, in Yosemite and uh, iOS 8. And it would be a lot less likely to do that if they thought Box was going to be acquired by Google. I, Even though it's an open API that everybody can do. So I guess who, you know, after Box, you know, Dropbox would be next, right? Yeah, and I think uh, Neil Seibert, like formerly Sammy the Walrus, like he 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 was one of those that's kind of speculating about it, and he's like, "Well, would Apple do the same for Dropbox?" And I think for the reason you said, yeah, absolutely. And I think when they demoed extensions, I think they had both Box and Dropbox, um, yes, there. And I think that's yeah, yeah they're the, Apple, and it's a good, it's it's the exact sort of relationship Apple Apple likes, where they need Apple more than Apple needs them. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't think, you know, Apple has any desire to crush Dropbox. I really don't. I mean, I know some people read into it and they think, you know, that they would just like everybody to, you know, I they want people to use iCloud Drive, no doubt about it. I mean, they made it so people would use it. But if people would rather use Dropbox instead, use Dropbox instead. You know, there's no way that they would go through the work to make things like Dropbox official. Because, you know, up until Yosemite, Dropbox was just a dirty hack to integrate with the Finder. That's right. They actually, they, they did like things for Dropbox in in Yosemite to, to actually yeah. make it make it work. Yeah. Yeah. It's all officially sanctioned and on the up and up those green checkboxes that show you, you know, like in the finder view when you're looking at something in your Dropbox. Uh, Dropbox is the one I use. I don't use Box. I don't use any of the other third party ones, but I use Dropbox. And now you get these official green check marks that you never got before. 
like when you used to get like a the little badge on your finder icon that would show you that a file was syncing to Dropbox and then it would go green when it was there. That was all uh, uh, using private APIs, you know, on Dropbox's part. And, you know, to their credit, I've been using Dropbox from very early days and I'm very loath, always have been loath to install third-party extensions that are using private APIs um, on Mac OS X. But Dropbox, you know, Dropbox, the features were worth it. And but I've always been like one foot, you know, like, hey, if I ever see problems, if the finder starts going wacky, you know, you're out the door. But they've, uh, they've never really been a problem. No, they've always been. They're very, very, very excellently engineered for something that was using um, private APIs. And I also think it's interesting. I always I, when they announced that at, at WWDC. I specifically thought about Dropbox, A, because I'm the most familiar with them and I use them, and B, because they had their own thing that was working. And in my experience, and I think most people's experience, I don't, I've never heard of anybody say, wow, Dropbox you know, crash, makes my computer crash or anything like that or corrupts my file system. Um, but they had their own thing. Would they be willing to dump their own thing that they'd spent all that work on to use Apple's thing? And they did. They've done the right thing. And I wonder how much of that is you know, that they, they considered a good allocation of engineering resources to go with the official APIs in Yosemite and how much of it, because um, they still have the old stuff because you can still run Dropbox on Mac OS 9 and, uh, I mean, 10.9. <laughs> I don't think 10, it runs on OS 9. No, 10 point, 10.9, 10.8, 10.7. Uh, I don't know how far back they go. So they've still got to keep their, their private API stuff going for their support of older versions of Mac OS. And so a lot of times, I think, in, you know, in my experience just watching the way the industry goes, a lot of times, and then, you know, a, a company isn't going to go with the new thing because they want to go with the backwards compatible thing, even though it's not using a public API. But Dropbox did the right thing, which, in my opinion, the right thing, which is to go with the official API, even though it sort of forks their code. And I wonder how much of that was about engineering and how much of it was about politics and keeping a, a, a good relationship with Apple. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I would, I wouldn't be surprised if Apple worked with them on it. You know, there was a bit of a, you know, quid pro quo here, like, you know, you got I, not a quid yeah. pro quo, but a, like, a, like, okay, we'll help you fix this, but you, I mean, you have to adopt it on day one. Um, yeah, and I, and if, as a user, it was seamless. I didn't even notice when they switched over. I think at some point, because I, you know, I've been running uh, Yosemite since the public betas in summer, and I'm pretty sure at the time, originally. I'm almost certain that Dropbox didn't already support it. I didn't even notice. I actually didn't notice when Dropbox started supporting it until one day I was like, oh, they obviously are because I've got the the new style check marks, not the ones that are superimposed on the icons. Yeah, it, 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 it's interesting. Um, the other thing, the other thing too is uh, I think, um, you know, Aaron Levy, I've, I've, I haven't really heard anyone say a bad word about him. I think people are are just happy that like it's been such a torturous journey for Vox that um they they finally made it. <laughs> so I, I I wouldn't be surprised. There's just a bit of like you know Cooks just genuinely happy for him. Yeah. Um, I'm gonna take a, another sponsor break, but before I do, it's a good reminder. I have a correction to make, uh, just a minor one. But last on the last show with Marco, I forget what we were talking about, but I said something about me running. Uh, iOS 9. And what I meant, I, that, I am not running iOS 9. I'm running iOS 8. But combine that with the things where like Mac Rumors has like an increase in the number of hits of people running iOS 9 um, from Cupertino. 
and I got, I, I don't know, a dozen emails from people asking whether I'm running iOS 9. No, I'm not running iOS 9. And if I were, I wouldn't be able to say anything about it anyway. It was just a stupid, uh, uh, what's the verbal typo? I don't know. Misspeak? Um, yeah. There's got to be a better word well, than that. Well, whatever a verbal typo is, that's all it was. In the same way that I just said that Dropbox still runs on uh, Mac OS 9. Yes. Yeah, which, the 9 seems to be a bit of a kryptonite number for you. Yeah, I don't know what it is. I've, uh, I don't know. Some, and, and I think uh, Mac OS going to 10.10 .10 somehow set over my tripodometer as well. It's like a, it's a I don't know. Well, I should. According to Urban Dictionary, a verbal typo is a thing. So, okay, I could just call it a verbal typo. Uh, it works for me. Yeah. Uh, what about malaprop? Is malaprop the right word? Uh, I don't think so, but I'm not confident. A malaprop or malapropism is the term for misspoken words. Yep, there you go. Yeah. A malaprop, the mistaken use of a word in place of a similar sounding one, often with unattention. Well, that's not quite right. Dancing of dance of flamingo instead of dance of flamenco. Although I do make a lot of malaprops, so <laughs> I think I do. I think that's a characteristic of like someone that like read a lot and like um, you know. We, we I mean, neither of us I think go out that often, and then you so you encounter a lot of words. Uh, but then when it actually comes to articulating them, sometimes you, I mean, we, I, I swear to God, we joked about this on a previous episode about how we constantly mispronounce words. Yeah. Yeah. Cause I've, you know, the, there's, there's a huge chunk of my vocabulary or things that I read when I was growing up and never heard anybody say. And so I just made up my own punctuation <laughs> or pronunciation in my, in my head. Totally. No idea of how it was actually supposed to be pronounced. Anyway, uh, our second sponsor is our good friends at Need, N-E-E-D. Need is a refined retailer and lifestyle publication for men. That's their official slogan. Uh, my friend uh, Jim Ray, very well-dressed man, knows his stuff, uh, really likes the stuff at Need, uh, has described Need as a refined retailer and lifestyle publication for men who generally don't like retailer and lifestyle publications for men, which is a great way to put it. So if you hear lifestyle publication for men and roll your eyes like, uh, not for me, maybe you should check out Need because it's a different style and vibe. Each month, here's what Need does. They source and curate a selection of exclusive products from brands around the world. They're presented in a monthly editorial. It's not just a catalog. They put them in an editorial sense. They have story around it. Uh, a lot like what you'd find in a men's magazine, allowing you to find the best products without any need for copious shopping or research or selection. Uh, they just launched volume 2.2, featuring items to help you make small, meaningful changes in your life, from amazing coffee to better shaving uh, to the best bedside clock. Volume 2.2 is Need's best collection yet. If that's not a good fit, They've also just launched seven brand new essentials collections featuring the best denim, footwear, and more. Um, they haven't done promotional codes yet. They're coming. They are coming. They're working on it. But in the meantime, talk show listeners who place an order with Need can just send an email to hello at neededition.com. That's their website, neededition.com. Uh, and 
place an order, any order, then send an email to hello at neededition.com with the subject line promo code. Just put promo code in the subject line and you will receive with your order a free bag of freshly roasted coffee or uh, uh, you can get a substitute magazine if you're the sort of terrible person who doesn't like coffee uh, and you'll get 25% off on your next order. So just go to neededition.com and neededition.com slash essentials. Uh, other things that you might be interested in, on February 4th, they're launching their first men's and women's collection for Valentine's Day. Uh, so that's coming up soon. So if you want to get gifts, if you order now, you'll get 25% off your next order when the Valentine's Day stuff comes out. And on January 28th, they're announcing an all-new project called Foremost. Sign up at foremostedition.com and you'll get early access, which will be necessary in this instance because they expect to sell out. So that, uh, and the discounts, any discounts you get from sending the email to hello at neededition.com, they apply there as well. So sign up at foremost edition, F-O-R-E-M-O-S-T, edition.com, and you'll get early access to their next cool project, which is sort of secret other than the name. Uh, so my thanks to them. It's weird. I feel, I feel over the last few weeks, I've encountered a, a few people that, uh, that don't, drink coffee or they gave up coffee um and i i just i just don't understand i just don't understand what drives what drives one to do such a thing they claim oh they claim oh i feel great but that just reminds me of the uh of the frank sinatra quote uh what is it uh, i feel sorry for people that don't drink because when they wake up in the morning that's the best they're gonna feel all day <laughs> such a great line i think well, you and merlin uh talked about the uh the blogger the blogger uh the oh, what was it the blogger drinking routine or something like that basically you you tell what time it is by what you're drinking um yep. in the morning it's coffee then it's uh like soda stream and then it's yep. scotch or something along those lines and that's, well, that's that's about how you know what time it, or martini in your case i suppose yeah exactly well i don't drink martinis every day i, I am all over the place on on alcohol i'm trying to expand my palate i just linked to I, i'm so proud of it i i don't know sometimes i really like to um i like it when I, my linking to something like blows it up, um, a guy named, did you see this, this guy named Mark? I, Bylock? I did. I put it in my Amazon cart. The only problem is this big book and they don't, you well, know, they don't ship to Taiwan. I don't think the backstory on this is I don't remember where I saw it. I don't remember. And it's, you, you, do you ever pre-order stuff from Amazon? I do it all the time. It's like sending gifts to myself because I always forget, <laughs> like, always forget. And so it was like, at some point in December, I got a thing from Amazon, and it was close to Christmas, really close. It might have been like the 23rd or something like that. And I had no pending gifts coming. Everything I had ordered had already shown up. I'd gotten everything done at a, re you know, not last minute. And and a thing came, and I assumed it was for my wife, and instead it was addressed to me. It was from Amazon. I thought, shit, I don't remember. I, I, don't, I have no idea what this is. I open it up, and here it is, The Whiskey Cabinet, this beautiful, beautiful book by Mark Bylock. And then I remembered, oh, a couple months ago, I pre-ordered this. Oh, here it is. Uh, and I thought, this book is beautiful. It is beautiful photography, beautiful paper, beautiful typography. And, you know, and I, I couldn't wait to read it. I was very excited. I went up and 
this is so it's such a weird coincidence because you know I'm terrible. I I'll go days. I I literally go days without checking my email sometimes. Oh, and it's it, uh, I was just talking to about this. Like I get less email than like when I worked at Microsoft, for example, way less. But it's so much more of a burden now because it's not my job. Like it's right. it's pure additive. Whereas before, well, like I lived in it, so it was it was like almost more tolerable. This was a day where I had gotten caught up on my inbox and I was, you know, down to the inbox zero, at least for like, you know, this week. Uh, and I had two new emails. One was junk and the other was from Mark Bylock. And I was like, what? That's crazy. The same guy's name is what's on the book. And he's like, hey, you know, no idea if you're interested. I've just written a book on whiskey. Uh, you might be interested. No, no, you know, I no no pressure to link it up or anything i just thought you might want a complimentary copy tell me where to send it and i'll send one i just it was like literally after right after i answered the ding dong of the ups giving me the book that i'd paid for so i quick snapped a photo with my phone and i was like too late i pre-ordered it months ago that's awesome uh, which is like an amazing story anyway long story short i read the book and i loved it so i linked it up on uh daring fireball and it like sold out at amazon so they have to like they had to, like order more from his publisher or something like that. No, I, I mean right. I, I I can certainly relate. I mean I think uh, I mean back when I back when I first I mean when I started Stratechery with the I had a five year plan. Like I thought maybe in five years I could make you know make a living from it, and then like move back to Taiwan and you know which is what we wanted to do, and uh, and it, obviously it's taken off far more quickly than 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 I anticipated. I haven't. I, it's not even two years old yet. Um, but, uh, but I mean, the big kind of the, the real big jump was, I, I might've told this story in the talks about previously, but was you linking to it and saying, you know, it's great new blog and stuff like that. But what was funny about it. And oh, sorry if I've told this one before, but, uh, I got an email from you, uh, like saying, oh, wow, you've been really prolific, really great stuff. By the way, I noticed, and you like went on this like three paragraph dissertation on a bad word choice I had made. And you're like, oh, I always make the same mistake as well. So I actually have a script to fix it when I do blah, blah, blah. It was like what the etymology of the word and how it was used, all sort of stuff. And it was it was so classic, like the John Gruber that, you know, anyone might imagine. And so right after that, like, I opened up Google Analytics. I started like refreshing your page. I'm like, I bet he's going to link to me soon. <laughs> and then like, like, 30 minutes later boom there it was uh and uh but it, it, i mean i I'll, I'll take the opportunity now being your show to thank you for that because it certainly was um you know a good uh you know i think i when you linked to me i probably had like 600 followers on twitter and within uh, you know a couple of days i had about 1500 and um i mean obviously i've gotten a lot since then but that uh, that was certainly kind of the the ignition or jump start so thanks john I do that. I if I see a typo or something like that, and something I'm going to link to, I do try to contact. And I know, if I know the person at all, I do try to tell them it before. But I never say that I'm going to link to it because I, I don't know. It, I don't. You don't want to lock yourself in. Well, partly I don't want to lock myself in. What if I change my mind? <laughs> what if I think you know what it's not worth linking to? And the other part is it somehow sounds a little presumptuous it's to me it's like if i just say hey you have a typo here it's like i'm doing you a favor i'm pointing it out if i say i'm you know i'm about to link to you but you have a typo it's it feels a little bit more like i'm not linking to you until you fix this typo yeah right and, it, and i don't want to put that you know i don't want to put any pressure on them I, I should i should i should find out what the word was yeah we could look up the email later i'm sure uh but anyway it made me think of that book by mark bylock because the whole gist of the book is 
it's it's not comprehensive. It's not an encyclopedia. It's just a sort of I don't know, I, don't know, I would guess maybe like a hundred whiskeys from around the world. You know, Scotland, Ireland, United States, Canada, Japan, uh, and like his you know expert opinion and discussion on what makes the different region. You know, what are the traditions and you know what makes them different and what you should be looking for if you're you know if you like one and you know i'm mostly a u.s bourbon rye drinker um but you know i'm i really like it and so i've you know i've been trying to expand my palate to other things around the world well, i think there's something to it about it not being comprehensive like and that just makes right. it so much more accessible right like and i have from years and years ago and he has the unfortunately coincidental name um michael jackson He's a famous, famous beer writer. Like I drank beer a lot more before I got into any kind of spirits. Uh, and it's a useful, it's, it's just a different type of book. But Michael Jackson has like a, a beer book that's encyclopedic. It is, I, you know, no, I guess, no, you know, beer is, there's so many microbrews. I don't think anybody could cover them all. But it, I think it's probably more like thousands of beers than hundreds of beers. Yeah, no, it, 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 exactly. And I, I share the affinity for the beer. By the way, I did find the email. Um I wrote, uh, I wrote this jives with data showing little cyclicality in Android purchases. Ah, yeah, yeah, wrote, yeah, uh, yeah. Jive is a dance or an adjective for U.S. black slang. The word you want is jive. And <laughs> this is what killed me is you had verb bracket, no objective bracket, informal, be in accord, semicolon, agree. Like it, it was like literally a dictionary definition. It wasn't like a offhand, this is what it means. It was like it, they had the nomenclature of a, of a dictionary definition. And then like, I note this because my habit was always to use jibe with a G when I met J. And you actually said you, you created a text expander snippet to fix it automatically. So, um, yeah, yeah and then, that's a common. It, it still kicks in every time I try to use it. I always use the wrong one. Well, as you note, confusingly enough, jive as a verb means make insulting or mocking remarks, jeer, which is actually very close to one of the alternate meanings of jive, which is taunt or sneer at. Right. Yeah, it's very confusing. Wait, so which is the one we want when we say that it's in agreement with something? Jibe, J-I-B-E. Your problem is you say G-I-B-E, and I said J-I-V-E, which is like a dance. Right, 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 right. Yeah, I actually, now that I think about it, I think I've finally gotten that down and I do tend to type it right. Because if I had to guess, I would have, right there, I would have guessed J-I-B-E. Yep. So, uh, no, you, you, that, that, that's, that's the word, jibe. Right. That's the type of thing that you get when you're pals with me. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and your, your ability to be a pal with you determines on whether you find that endearing or just absolutely irritating. Yeah. Also, some sad news to report. Ends up Michael Jackson, the beer hunter, died in 2007. <laughs> so my condolences to his family. But his his world guide to beer, I don't know how many beers are in there. But anyway, it's not that type of book, The Whiskey Cabinet. It's, you know, I think he's got like, like I said, probably under 100. I don't know in the book. But it's, you know, just a couple from each region in each style. It's too bad for Michael Jackson that he never, like, he didn't even get a single year of his life where he was the only Michael Jackson. Oh, that's right. I guess he died first. Wow. That's really a shame. I had a little bit of that with that uh, Jonathan Gruber economist guy. <laughs> so how, what percentage of those tweets did you retweet? Oh, only the, I would say maybe 10% of them. Wow. So it was, you, retweeted, it was, you retweeted quite a few and they were all hilarious. Yeah, that was, uh, that was a real quick on and off. It was like a week long firestorm. 
I know. I do thank I I've, I thank the maker that the guy's name was Jonathan, not John. I don't know if he goes by John or what. And at first, when it first started breaking, there were an awful lot more John Grubers. And he's, you know, because he's a Jonathan, he's J-O-N. So it is spelled differently. But that's certainly, I mean, I, you know, when you are named John, you're very sensitive to the H, no H thing. But, it's, you know, let's face it, you know, that's a very typical mistake. You know, like half the, half the, I, I well, I'd say a third of the Valentines I got in elementary school were spelled <laughs> J-O-N. A third were spelled correctly, and a third were spelled J O N H. I can totally sympathize because I'm 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 Benjamin Thompson, and Thompson actually has like multiple spellings, like th- three right. or four. Right, there's the P and P no P. And it's so it's so unfair because I both have a boring name and I have to spell it all the time. Like it should be one or the other. Like if you have to spell all the time, it should be because you have a really kick ass name that no one's heard of before. Right, but no, I have right. to spell it all the time, and it's, I'm just Benjamin Thompson. So. Right, so somebody who does something famous or infamous named Ben Thompson but with no P is not the same name as you, but you're going to get conflated anyway. Well, I do appreciate that my nemesis on Google, um, when, you know, when I was trying to be the, the top result for Ben Thompson, which I which I am now, was um, Ben Thompson Lawman. And, and like the top article from him is Badass of the Week. I'm like, oh, if I'm going to get confused with someone, I'll get confused with the Badass of the Week. Wow. I just noticed. I just uh, I haven't done this in a while. I don't know if it's true for you. For years, I, I I even gave up on it. I was not the top search in Google for Gruber, just Gruber. It was always uh, Gruber Industries, the people. But this might be because, well, I'm not signed in. What do you get if you search Google for Gruber? I get during Fireball. Huh. See, I get different. I get Twitter.com slash Gruber. If I'm not signed in, I get Jonathan Gruber, the economist. And then Daring Fireballs next, and then John Gruber Twitter. But the other thing is because um, I'm in Taiwan, so all, there's right. all that stuff that affects it. I have a VPN here, but I won't sign in because I'll probably mess up my connection. Um, yeah, I haven't searched for years. I because I honestly don't. I, I don't know. I'm vain in other ways, but I'm not super. I, I realize I, I I've I have good enough Google juice, but uh, Gruber.com used to come up first for years and years and years. It's some kind of industrial company down in Arizona who got the domain name like in 1993, much to my chagrin yeah i can't help but think and but i've never really heard anything about them i can't help but think that there was some kind of rearranging of google's algorithm that they used to favor uh search term in the dot com over anything else oh but for years and years and years but gruber.com doesn't even show up on my first page stupid jonathan gruber guy what a (laughs) <laughs> God made me so mad. But anyway, the best thing that happened with that was that at some point during the week where he was really in the news. Yeah, so if people who don't uh, know, like John, he said something about like Obama care passed by because people were stupid or something like well, something he, like that. He is a world renowned economist at MIT, and his specialty is healthcare legislature. And he wrote the Massachusetts law or helped write the Massachusetts uh, healthcare law that Mitt Romney, when it, it's this whole, you know, I don't want to get into the politics of it, but this weird situation where it was a healthcare law that gave everybody in Massachusetts universal healthcare coverage. Uh, in a Republican style, because they had a Republican governor who eventually went on to run for president. And the way that uh, President Obama went about trying to get health care was instead of pursuing a traditionally Democratic style, you know, which is single be, payer, uh, single payer, it was like, look, I just want people to have health care. Let's go the Republican route and and, you know, follow the Massachusetts model and, you know, ended up being, you know, 
obviously it's a political hot button thing. Anyway, he was also a consultant on the national version of this law. And then years ago, this is what the weird thing about it is that it wasn't something he said recently, but it was like years ago at some kind of um, uh, conference for other economists. So he wasn't speaking to the public, had no, you know, was being videotaped, obviously, but, you know, wasn't, he's not a politician. It wasn't going to go spread wide. It was this discussion about how the word tax is just toxic in American political culture. And so to pay for the new healthcare law, they couldn't call anything they did to raise money for it a tax. And so they called it, I don't know what, a subsidy instead. There's some kind of way that through the the, the vagaries of the way that the US Congress uh, budget department classifies different types of legislature, it wouldn't be called a tax, it would be called a subsidy. But it's arose by any other name. It's people paying more money to a collection that would then be distributed to pay for the mechanics of the law. Uh, and his explanation was very, it was honest, it, but it was more or less that the, you know, American voters are too stupid to know the difference, be, you know, that calling it something else doesn't make it something else. Right. Which is true in a sense, but, you know, I mean, in a way that, it, but it was taken by Republicans as an insult that he was, you know, that it, the law was passed under false pretenses and he became, you know, the public enemy number one of American Republicans and an awful lot of them uh, <laughs> tweeted at, at, at Gruber. At Gruber was, because they would like, I even if they went so far as to see what at Gruber was and then saw it was in fact somebody named John Gruber, whether it had an H or not, and he had a bunch of followers, uh, they just assumed it was him. And so for about a week, I, I was inundated with vitriolic and and I think part of it is that you had to make a mistake to do that, which increased the chance that the people doing it weren't really the sharpest pencils in the case. <laughs> right. And so I took to retweeting some of them. It was it was interesting. It was, you know, if you think that like the vitriol that I I get, you know, from let's say Android fanatics when I say something disparaging about Android or something like that, if you think that's harsh, the way that the political stuff is is just unbelievable oh it's 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 yeah it's incredible yeah people i mean just seriously saying things like you know go kill yourself at gruber i mean no no exaggeration uh and i you know it just occurred to me and i would write back to some of them some of them i would retweet some of them i would tweak a little and, and then some of them i would just write back totally honest it's like did you you know what were you thinking you know were you thinking that i would see this when you wrote it you know, like what goes through your mind if you're doing that? Do you do you assume, do you think that the Jonathan Gruber was going to read that and perhaps feel bad about himself because here's somebody wishing you would kill him, like kill himself? Why Why would you write that? Like what is going through your mind? How can you go through your day with so much hate? I, I it, it was interesting to me. It's like the extreme opposite of like what we were talking about before, like the ability to like see a product through someone's eyes. It's like, just a complete and utter lack of empathy. Yeah. And, you know, like, do you go through the rest of your life like that? Or does this only spew out on Twitter? And then there were a few people who I tweaked. I told some people that we were, I was, we were going to next, the next step was we were going to come take your guns. <laughs> I was like, wait, wait until next year when we come take your guns. It's a healthcare issue. We're going to come. <laughs> and they're like, I'd like to see you try. And it's like, we're on our way. 
tell some of these people you're coming to take their guns and it really riles them up. Those are the best. Oh. Anyway, that's died off for the most part. But it really elevated this guy in the Twitter rankings for Gruber, though. Jeez. Anyway, but it's the best thing that happened. I know it was Fox in particular, um, which really helped. But Fox News, it, it was very clear to me as like probably the second most interested observer in the country that they they uh, there must have been a memo that circulated with. And, and I don't I don't think it had anything to do with me. I don't think it had anything to do with me. But they 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 clarified they they unified on Jonathan Gruber instead of John Gruber. MIT economists, they, at first, when the, when the whole thing first broke, it was like half and half where they would spell it J-O-N or spell out the whole Jonathan. And about halfway through the week, Fox started consistently calling him Jonathan Gruber. And it, it helped a lot, I think. Interesting. Well, maybe, uh, you know, your friendship with uh, Clayton Morrison helped out there. You know, I thought about it. I actually was like at the it's funny because I was thinking about it and I was halfway thinking maybe I should write to Clayton and and just say, you know, I know you can't do anything about this whole thing. But if you could just, you know, pass the word around to call the guy Jonathan instead of John, I would appreciate it. But I never even had to do that. It seemed like Fox. Uh, it happened on its own. Much, much to uh, the decrease in entertainment for the rest of us. Yeah. Uh, only other thing I could see in the news this week was uh other than the big Microsoft stuff, which I do want to talk about, but uh, did you see Mark Gurman's report on the Apple Watch? So yeah, the, somebody the, at the Apple told stuff. him they're. Yeah, which is a little weird. I thought the more interesting thing that he had was that, according to Mark Gurman and his unnamed source at Apple, that they have three thousand units uh, already in use by Apple employees. Although he doesn't say by Apple employees, but from what I understand, you know. I had heard a few weeks ago that there were a thousand in use. So German says three thousand. It could just be that they've expanded it, but it's all that they are all in uh, the hands of Apple employees. Well, I mean, it, it, you it, you have to think it's relatively easy to pull off. I mean, more even more so than than, than a phone. Um, I mean, I guess the the kind of screen being black is a bit of a giveaway, but. I mean, a, a watch. I mean, a watch is a watch, and especially now. I mean, I mean, California never gets particularly cold, but people are more likely wearing long sleeves and jackets and yeah. stuff like that. It's kind of an ideal time um, to do it. I've thought for weeks, like when I heard weeks ago that there were a thousand of them in use. Uh, I was a little surprised we haven't seen more because I remember in the six month run up to the iPhone coming out, there were none of them leaked. It wasn't like the time the iPhone four, you know, was found in a bar, but there were like a steady stream of. Here's a here's a blurry shot of a guy on Bart who was using an iPhone until I took out my you know camera phone to take a picture of him and then he put it back in his pocket you know but there were always there were a steady stream of reports of people who'd spotted Apple employees with iPhones before it came out at the end of June and I haven't seen a single peep of anybody saying you know I saw a guy with an Apple Watch at such and such yeah that's a good point I think it's you know I think it's like what you said a watch is just too you know, especially if you're being even just a little bit circumspect about when you take it out when you're not at work or at home, it's really, really hard to notice that somebody's got an Apple Watch. That said, I mean, I, I mean, I saw someone using using a smartwatch the other day, and it was like, it was super obvious he was using a smartwatch. Uh, so maybe they're they're just not using them in public. Maybe that's part of right. the the instruction. Yeah, well, my understanding is the instruction is you're allowed to use it and take it. And if anybody even asks, they are allowed to say, yes, it's an Apple Watch. I work for Apple, but they're not allowed, certainly not allowed to take it off. And they're not allowed to do any kind of demonstration. 
Yeah. And they are, but they're allowed to say, but I'm not allowed to do a demonstration. Well, that's, yeah, that's one of the benefits around. of having announced it already is there's, there's, exactly. there's nothing to hide. Right. There's nothing to hide. And, and what you see when you're not using it is all, you know, you'll get a much better view of it on apple.com than you will on somebody's wrist. It's interesting. I mean, we, we, I think the last time I was on, we, we were talking about all about the watch. Um, and it was funny because like, I, I, I have a spidey sense when you're going to invite me on the talk show. Uh, so I kind of I kind of had an idea that I, this week was going to be one of those weeks. Um, the same thing with with the watch thing. Uh, probably because I, I, to, I, I to it's be such clear, a I, result to that. Um, to be clear, I asked you to be on about thirty seconds before we started recording. <laughs> that's a, that's a not, that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but um, it was funny. Cause it, it, I swear to God, today I went to the gym. I came back and I was um, I don't know why I was thinking about. It. I th- I think I was listening to last week's episode while I was working out. And I was like, oh, I think I was thinking like, oh, I, I actually I thought John was going to have me on this week, but uh, I guess not. And then like 30 minutes later, I got a message from you. I know it's a little late, but uh, do, you, do you have time today? Um, but uh, no, the, the, I mean, um, one thing with the watch is uh, the, another product I'm actually pretty intrigued about is the Amazon Echo. Like the the okay. box in your room, and the reason I am, and I'm actually much more intrigued by that than I ever was by the Fire Phone. And I think people kind of just dismissed out of hand because it came on the heels of the Fire Phone. But um, like it sounds stupid, but the idea of just like talking to something instead of like pulling something out of your pocket and then talking to it, or with the watch just looking at your wrist instead of pulling out your phone and looking looking at something, like it sounds it sounds so trivial, but like convenience always wins right i think we might have talked about this before but i mean it's little conveniences add multiplied by all the times that they matter end up being a big deal and uh and it's funny i think the echo has gotten kind of mixed reviews but i'm still a lot of people there are people who do really like it and i think it's it's because it's a it's in a similar vein to what i think the watch is going to be where it it's you you don't kind of realize until you use it like how it just makes life a little bit less, a little more frictionless. And, um, you know, it's, it's the, the idea of it being the center is a long ways off just for all the technical reasons more than anything. But I I think convenience is always, convenience is always are easier to see backwards than forward. Yes. Yes. It's more easy to tell how much you appreciate it when it's taken away than when you first get it always, you know, and it's the same way that like, uh, uh, when you go back to an older iPhone, it makes your current iPhone feel so much faster than it felt when you first got the new iPhone. You get a new iPhone, next next generation, A whatever chip, you're like, wow, this is great. It's a lot faster. And if you put it down and take your year-old one or your two-year-old one, especially like a two-year-old one, you're like, holy shit, this is so jaggy and scroll. Um, uh, you know, coming out of college and you get your first apartment and it has a dishwasher and you're like, great, this is great. I love having a dishwasher. Well, when your dishwasher breaks and you don't have a dishwasher anymore, you're like, holy shit, how do I live without a dishwasher? Right. Yep. No. I've, and I think, I think, you know, that voice could be something like that. No, I, 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 I agree. And I think it's one of those things where if you, I mean, I, it's easy to look back and just like, I, but I, I really do think that people said like when the phone came out, it's like, well, I could do this. I can do this on the computer. Or I can do this, or especially the iPad. I think you probably saw this more than anything. Um, like little, little making it just a little bit easier uh, makes a, makes a really big difference. And um, and I, I I think that that's a good vector to look at any new product. Like 
does it does it make life just a little bit easier? And if it does, then that product probably has a chance. The thing I didn't understand about Amazon Echo when they announced it, and I you know they announced it, and I watched their their little video with the family you know using it. Uh, I didn't understand that it was going to be invitation only for some period of time. Uh, Dave Whiskers actually was just telling me he was thinking about getting one, but it's like you don't buy one. You can't just buy one. You go to the site and you request an invitation to buy one. Yeah, uh, so I actually just in the in the other thing is I just got I my request just got granted and it said it's going to ship in three to four months or something like that. I I, yeah. I suspect like they just got burned so badly by the phone that they way like they got way too conservative, like they overcorrected. And it's really hard to ramp something. And if you if you if you kind of started out with the assumption we're going to sell a hundred thousand units, you get a million orders. Like it's not just that you're behind in that million orders, that but that that being behind kind of compounds. Yeah. So it's interesting though. I do think that you know, like you said, there is something, and this is you know, is this this is sort of closest to the HAL style interface of 2001 right where what was the interface with hal on the discovery it was you just talked to hal you know there was no button to push there was nothing you didn't have to go over and push a button to start talking to him you just talk to him because he was always listening no yeah that's the thing it's so when you look at any new product you have to think it's so easy to to um (laughs) someone made a bingo card for my podcast exponent and uh, a notorious word I say is over-index, and I'm going to use it. Uh, it's so easy to over-index on what the product is today. But to evaluate, you have to think about like, what's this product going to be after three or four iterations. And, like, for right. example, the original Kindle, like, the original Kindle was a piece of crap. And it looked terrible, and it felt terrible. But, like, it was so obvious that this is how we're going to read books going forward, right? And once it's thin and easy to hold – and actually, I think the version 2 Kindle w- was was very good. They, they actually – the, the, there's a huge jump from one to two, but I think that this, that's something with, you see with the iPhone, and I think that's something with something like the Echo, and I think I, I think it will be the case with the watch as well, where it's not just you, you have to look at it not just as what it can do right now and what capabilities it has right now or what battery life it has right now. You have to think about what is this going to be in five years, and can you see a path from here to there? And if that path is a path that's easily understandable, as in like, our chip's going to get more efficient. Yes. Our screens get more efficient. Yes. Our battery's going to improve. Not as fast as those are going to get more efficient, but yes, they're going to improve. Like there's, and you, it's just like, you have to be able to put yourself in the shoes of a new user. It's the same sort of thing. When you look at a product, you have to, you have to be able to assimilate what you know about the way technology progresses. And that's how you evaluate a product. Not, you can't evaluate it on version one. Yeah, one of the interesting things about Echo is to me, it's the first new product from any of these companies in my memory where battery isn't an issue because it's not battery operated. It's something you plug in. Yeah. Like when's the last time somebody's come out with something that doesn't isn't battery operated? It's you know, that that's fascinating to me because it's it just hasn't happened in so long. No, it's it's a great point. Um yeah, I think people were like joked about it. like Amazon actually sold tried to sell that as a feature. I can plug it in, and I totally got that. I'm like, yeah, it, it, it's 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 like it's your home it's your home assistant in a lot of ways. Um, I think the problem for Amazon obviously is uh you know they're they don't have the entire like they don't have the mobile companion really to go with it. Um, which you know, obviously the phone you know their phone was intended to be, I would imagine, but uh. But still, I think I think the concept is at least compelling. And if if Echo isn't it, I wouldn't be surprised if 
you know, in five, 10 years, we all have a similar sort of device uh, in, in our houses that we just talked to. Yeah, I wonder. I wonder if it's already in the works, if the, you know, whatever the next generation Apple TV is, is always listening. Uh, Xbox, you know, Microsoft's done it with Xbox for a while where, I, I don't know, is it OK Xbox? Something like that has been a trigger for, you, you've been able to give vocal commands to your Xbox for a while. Yeah. I think going back to the previous Xbox, the 360. No, I mean, it's, it, it, seems, um, it seems like an obvious thing for the Apple TV. I mean, man, talk about a product that's stagnated. Yeah, well, yeah, I think that's basically, I, I don't know if they've missed a deadline, you know, and something has slipped or what, but there's clearly something new is coming. I mean, at this point, I would say, I I probably would have bet on something, you know, a year ago, if we had talked a year ago, I probably would have bet on some kind of new Apple TV at the end of 2014. So at this point, I would call it overdue. And I kind of expect to see or more i wouldn't be shocked if we don't see it in 2015 because i don't know maybe they've but if if we're talking a year from now and they still don't have a new uh like a truly new apple tv then then i would a year from now i would think maybe they've written it off maybe they've you know abandoned yeah because i i was i I thought it was gonna come in 2013 so like yeah that's what i meant by stagnating like stagnating as in like the mac pro stagnated um right like so yeah either it's dying or it's because there's a wholesale kind of like refresh coming they're wait yeah they're waiting on something either a piece some kind of hardware or and or software that they need to to make the one they want to make and it's not ready yet. i don't think they're giving up on it though because i mean especially i mean i think that home kit is is important even though we haven't heard a ton about it and and apple tv is pretty important home kit so yeah. Uh, I don't think they would do that if it was something they were giving up on. Yeah, and at the very least, even in a in an Apple TV list world, you need something in your house always plugged in to make HomeKit really sing. And so, why not just make it a thing you put in your TV since everybody has a TV? Yep. No. Right. It like it doesn't have to be Apple TV. It could be anything, but why not just make it Apple TV? Yeah, no, I, I've always thought. I mean, I, I've 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 long thought like they're, they're going to unify like the router and the Apple TV, and you know that would that would take care of some leg issues for one for for AirPlay. Um, if you it, like, if the app ecosystem ends up like running off an iPhone or whatever whatever it might be, um, but now I, I love the idea that you put forward of like there being an Echo types type angle to it as well. I think it makes. I mean, obviously Siri would be involved in it, but having it be kind of a an assistant that you can just talk to, I think, is is really compelling. I thought about that two years ago. That why why not combine Apple TV with um, the airport router? So then there's only one thing to plug in. And I didn't even think latency is even. It's just a plus. I'm just thinking, hey, just one thing. Plug this in. Put your cable thing in the back. Put the power plug in, and you're done. Um, and then I kind of thought, ooh, maybe not. When I got the latest generation airport, which was so much bigger. Right, but I think I mean I think the but that has that has the that's an actual router like and has multiple ports and stuff like that. Um, I, I think the Airport Express is probably a, a a fuller expression of like Apple's ideal router in a lot of ways. Well, my understanding is that the reason the, the new Airport Extreme is so tall is that it was it, and who knows you know who knows how long it was in the works you know with. Steve Jobs being gone, but it was just purely engineering that having antennas that are up, bigger antennas that are up, just is a big part of why it gets better reception through your house. Uh, no, I whereas the 
Whereas the older ones that were so much smaller were always constrained in terms of the energy, you know, the power of their antennas. Right, because like the super like long range ones have like actual antennas that like stick up. So that makes sense. It's a little bit more of a practical design than a, you know, it's, it's function over form. But I don't know. It might be a hard sell when all the other boxes are so small and the old Apple TV was so small to say your new Apple TV is, you know, now 10 times. Yeah, that's a good point. I don't know. But, it, you know, but on the other hand, hey, just plug this one thing in and you're done is is compelling. Um, what was the other thing? So German's other thing was all about how the battery sucks on Apple Watch. Uh, but I, I see to me, that's like no surprise. Of course it does. All right? like, of course, that's the biggest thing that that's holding them up. I mean, I, I, you, know, I you don't really need sources to tell you that. Yeah, I mean, it's going it, to the thing I've I, I always kind of maintained about the about about the watches 24 it just has to get you through the day and the fun the, the way to address battery life is not to make like week-long battery life or month-long battery life it's to make battery life that it's to make the functionality so great that you're willing to put up with charging it all the time and that like that's what they do with the phone right the iphone's iphone battery life right. relative to our old phones is still drastically worse than it was before but we don't care about that because the functionality is so superior that we put up with charging it. Like it's assumed that we're going to carry char- – like you go around. Like you can go to any shopping mall here and there's lockers when you walk in the door where you can pay to plug in your phone. And, and like right. you, know, you can go shopping and come back at your phone and it'll, it'll, it'll be charged. And like that's – if you kind of think about it, that's kind of crazy. But it's, it's, it's not crazy anymore because it, it, that's – of course, why wouldn't you – why wouldn't you – no one's going to give up functionality to get better battery life today. That's just the way it right. is. Right. Every every time an airport is uh, a new terminal is added or a terminal is is uh, refurbished, it's always you know a huge factor is you know getting power outlets to 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 more people. Yeah, I, I, yeah, I, it's so frustrating to go to an airport with no power outlets, and then you have people are like huddled around like whatever outlets right. are there. It's it, you know, it is like it's nobody had the idea, but it's a just, you know, it, a dystopian science fiction future come to life where, you know, everybody waits around <laughs> sucking up power. Yeah, like there's there's like rows of seats and no one's sitting there. Everyone's sitting on the floor on like the one pillar that has like outlets with it. Right. It's interesting because eventually that'll happen, though, because you remember uh, and I know Jason Snell has written about this lately, where clearly Apple has these target numbers in mind, like. X number of hours for an iPhone and 10 hours of battery life for an iPad and they stick to them. And with the iPad in particular, like it's been dead solid, every single iPad and they have that number in their head and then they just keep making the devices as thin as they possibly can walk hitting that number, you know, and it's every single year when iPhones come out and they're, or every other year when a new generation comes out and it's so much thinner, there's a decent chunk of people who have, you know, personally have different sets of priorities who say, why couldn't they just make it as thick as the last one, which was plenty thin and just give me more battery life. But eventually that's going to happen because it happened with laptops, laptops, MacBooks, PowerBooks, whatever you want to call them, got like three to four hours of battery life year after year after year after year after year. And then all of a sudden, boom, you know, it, it shot up to seven, eight, nine hours of battery life. And eventually that'll happen with phones. Like eventually we'll have an iPhone that instead of getting thinner, instead gives you like you go two or three days without plugging it. Yeah. In. Well, I mean, I, I obviously I'm, I'm, I'm not uh, uh, the right person to measure this because I work from home. 
But uh, the iPhone 6, I, my favorite feature, even more than, than having a larger screen, is that I never worry about battery life anymore. Um, again, like I, I, I probably haven't plugged in more than most people and I've heard from people that, yeah, it's still not good enough, but for me anyway, like it, it's, it's crossed that line compared to the five S, which if I, I, I was always worried about it. Yeah, no, I've, uh, you know, going to Disney world is a good test for me because it used, used to, you know, I'd need my Mophie to get through a day and I don't anymore Yep. or any kind of travel day, any kind of day where I'm, you know in an airport and going somewhere and doing all of my computing from the phone. Uh, always used to need a Mophie and I don't generally anymore. The other thing, um, I mean, the other thing is Mark German's reporting 2.5 to four hours of active application use. I mean, that seems pretty good to me. I, I mean, I, yeah, I think that's all. It, it's interesting. Cause I'm sure that those, you know, he's got great sources and I'm sure they're real numbers, but I, I feel like it's, it, it's hard to think about that as a user because from a user's perspective, you're not going to think about stuff like that. And in particular, the other one he called out, I agree. I think that's actually pretty good uh, considering how I think we'll be using these things. The other one was the time telling and the time telling, as I understand it, and I've heard from people is um, so the watch is off most of the time or the, the, the face is off most of right. the time. And it has to be because it's, you know, I, 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 we don't know yet whether it's OLED or LCD. I think it might be some kind of OLED, though, because they're using black as the background instead of white. Um, but regardless, any kind of color screen like that, whatever the technology is, you know, the, the biggest power sink that you're going to have on the device. So it's off most of the time. Um, my understanding is that they've put like inordinate, like a huge chunk, the whole three year long effort, there've been teams devoted to it or an A team devoted to it is that when you twist your wrist to look at the time, it is already, you know, it turns on like the detection of this is the type of motion of a person checking the time is like an A1 priority for the thing. And that apparently it works, it already works really, really well. It's very, very smart about turning on when you want to look at it. Um, but then when you turn your wrist back, it goes off again. So it, it, it's, I forget how long it said. It was like three hours, like the watch lasts three hours of continuous telling the time or something like that. Yeah, the, 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 only, uh, thing with the, the only thing with that is, I, I think this is the one thing that really kind of detracts from the uh, watch as fashion accessory thing. Because the, the, I mean, the face of a watch is, is super important to its being a fashion accessory like they can have beautiful bands they can have a beautiful case but if it's just a black box um it's that 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 is an area where i mean if they were ever to get to a point where they could actually have those watch faces on all the time like i think that would be a that would be a, a big deal just from from i mean we're, 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 yeah, we're, if they could do it, they would. But they yeah, can't. we're we're while we're seeing our pajamas podcasting. I don't think we're fashion right. experts, but I do think yeah that that will be when and if they can get to that point. I think that will be that will be a big deal. Right, but it's definitely in this. You know, you know, their Apple clearly is going way more as this is a watch watch, and we're you know we're going right up against any watch brand you want than anybody else in the smartwatch game, but. Clearly, one of the areas where they just can't compete is the fact, like you said, that the face is black, you know, and and whatever choice you make in terms of which style of of the many that they offer from for for your watch style has no bearing on what other people see when they see it on your wrist. Right. 
you know, the guy across from you in the aisle on the train who's not moving his wrist or checking the time, all you see is that he has an Apple Watch. You have no idea what face is on. That's a, that, and that's definitely a factor. There's it's there's no getting around. What, the, the, what's interesting is at least for at the beginning, before they are, you know, obviously Apple would like them to be as widespread as phones. But if you think back when the phone iPhone first came out, like it was it said something that you had an iPhone. It was it was obvious that 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 you had one and there weren't very many people that had one. And so it's almost like it's not that big a deal at the beginning because just seeing that that black square uh will be meaningful enough. Um right. whereas once and and ideally once they get to the point uh if they're successful and they become ubiquitous, that the by that point their power management will also be to the point where uh, they can be fully customized and on all the time and, and fully fulfill that kind of like uh, personal personalized fashion angle. Yeah. Yeah, I read it so much, not so much as how much time, how much it can tell the time, but how much, how long the screen can be on. So if it can be on for three hours, that sounds pretty good because it doesn't seem to me like you would, it doesn't seem like, how, how could you spend more than three hours looking at the little thing? Like- right, Exactly. I mean, if if you're if you're gonna be interacting with it that long, you might as well take out your phone, right? Um, three thousand users. So I wonder how. I wonder if that's right. Seems like a lot, but again, a lot for it not to have leaked. But on the other hand, maybe it's a lot easier to conceal. It'll be interesting. It's soon. Yeah. Yeah, what do you think about that? German said that uh, that it's still on pace to ship at the end of March. I, I it seems seems reasonable. I, I like I I suspect they were shooting for February. Um, you know, just uh, maybe for the Chinese market, like Chinese New Year super late this year. People get cash mm-hmm. for Chinese New Year. Um, but uh, so I it, it fits with a well, let's shoot for this. Um, well, we didn't quite make it, but it's still it's still early in the year. Um. You know, I don't, I don't think uh, I would, I would, you know, of course, you know, Mark Gurman is number one at pointing out that Tim Cook said there'd be products released throughout 2014 and they didn't release anything until the second half of the year. Um, but that said, I think that uh, he wouldn't drop a date lightly. Right. Yeah, I don't know. I still think March is, I, I'll be impressed if it ships by March because I don't know. My impression from the few people I, I secondhand, all secondhand, no firsthand information from everybody who's wearing one, but secondhand information who know people who are wearing them is that they're still buggy enough and have poor enough battery life that March would be an achievement. Because they're, you know, they, if, if it's too buggy and too, the battery life is too bad, there's, you know, it's not going to come out in March. You know, they're, they have the wiggle room to, push it until april or may or even june uh like june will give you know people will roll their eyes because that's about as late as early 2015 can be um but they you know they have that wiggle right and in first impressions will matter right it would be better to have people complaining that june is pretty damn late for early to that you know quote unquote early 2015 than to ship it in march just to hit the first quarter and you know have it be riddled with bugs yep or not make it through the day um what was the other thing just so i can't i made a note here when you were talking about it can't talk about the fire phone without talking about austin cars it's not new i guess it was a sometime in the last month his fast company piece on the making of the fire phone surely you read it i I was quoted in it um 
Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's right. I remember that. I, that's actually one of the things that I was like, "Ooh, I should, I should get Ben on the show this week." I actually remember that. It, it was in. I thought it was a tremendous piece of. Reporting. Oh yeah, I and mean, he talked to a lot of people, um, and and got you know a lot of inside people at Lab One Twenty Six. That that it was definitely very compelling, and if you haven't read it, you should. I'll link it in the show notes. I actually want to link it on Daring. It'll be linked on Daring Fireball in between us recording and and uh, the show airing. But I'll put it in the show notes too. But it's just a tremendous piece of reporting and rather scathing. It's interesting because um, the, the the one the, he talked about, like Amazon not being focused, uh, and that's a common critique that any Apple fan will have about Amazon. Um, but actually, when I, I told him this when I talked to him, um, Amazon's not that kind of company. Like Amazon is in many respects the anti-Apple or the bizarro Apple. And like the, the, the way the company works internally is it's a lot of companies. Some of them are mature companies that throw off cash and some of them are startups that devour cash. And because they're all under one roof, uh, th- that money can be funneled from the ones throwing off money to the ones that need it. And, and, and so there are lots of groups that, that, that kind of start. And so you go to amazon.com and it's like one website, but actually like there's the clothing section and there's the, the car section. And like all these are within Amazon, completely separate groups. And they have their own, they have their own procurement managers. They have their own marketing managers. They have their own, uh, you know, their own P and L's. It's like, it's the exact opposite structure from the way Apple is set up. And, and it's meant to almost be like a self incubator in, in a lot of ways. And so from that perspective, uh, to say that Amazon's doing this, like the phone can fit in that. And actually almost if you look at it this way and that if you accept that this is the way Amazon is and that's the way they're going to operate, my critique of the phone and what I took away from that reporting is that Jeff Bezos in particular was too focused on the phone. And like he, he, he got too obsessed with it and didn't let it kind of breathe and go through a natural sort of like startup process and that more than anything was was a and he's he got a blind spot about like the viability of this product which which i mean everyone was kind of knew was a lot of us were saying there was no point to it before they even announced it and once they announced it, it was like what you know what <laughs> this makes no sense um what it, it's it's a cautionary tale it i i think in that you get so wrapped up in something you you lose all perspective yeah well that gets back to my argument earlier in the show with Forstall and the ability to look at it like an interface and say, you know what? We've put a lot of effort in this, but this is crap. We need to scrap this, right? You get too close to it and you lose. Yeah. It's just, to me, it's the same type of thing that you can, I can see how it happened, you know, because I know that's just human nature, but I mean, the gist of it, the big point of it is that the, all this emphasis and it came from Bezos directly was on this 3d, whatever they call it, you know, the camera sensors on the front to make a fake 3D interface that you don't need glasses for on the screen. Um, And the, 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 on within the team, there was some, you know, it's a neat trick. It's a neat idea, but what in the world, how in the world is it a selling point? What is the actual purpose of this? Uh, And yet Bezos got hung up on it and thought it would be the selling point. And it certainly was the selling point in the initial marketing. The marketing was all about this 3D effect. 
And then in reality, it turned out exactly what the naysayers on the team had thought, which is nobody sees the point of it. Yeah, that's that's the thing about and, differentiation. It's not just having a unique feature. It's actually making a difference in customers' lives in the way that another product cannot. Right. It actually isn't. It didn't make it a better device. And that's the whole problem. Uh, and yet it also made it something that was expensive because it was a high-end phone. It was a premium phone, you know, that, and I... This is the part where I disagree with Carr's analysis. The reporting is interesting that there was that there were people within the team who said all along, "I don't see the point of this. It's it's just, you know it's it's pure gimmickry and no utility," um, and they were right. And and without it, then the Fire Phone was left with nothing compelling because the other stuff that it has, none of it was best of breed. Doesn't have the best apps. Doesn't have the best ecosystem. What you know, there was nothing else about the device that was that was worth hanging your hat on. The only thing they had to hang their hat on was the 3D effect, and the 3D effect was pointless. But Bezos was all caught up in it for like well over a and year. And you saw that in the keynote too. Like the keynote was so long and it was so self-absorbed. I actually wrote yeah. this at the time. Like I thought I found the keynote very distressing, not just just because it was it was it it, it reeked of hubris. And and yeah. basically this this article said, yeah, that's basically exactly it. Yeah. And so there, I agree, and I think it's spot on. Where I disagree, and the article several times touches on it, and I think you can kind of see Carr goes along with it. He has sources saying it too, so it's not just Carr as the writer projecting it, but it's the idea that the whole idea of a high-end phone from Amazon is contrary to their brand and doomed from the start. That this idea that they can make a phone that competes with Apple was a terrible idea because Apple competes on branding and design, and Amazon is just low-end prices. And so if Amazon wanted to do a phone, it should have been a you know, some piece of junk that was super cheap. Uh, and I disagree with that. I disagree with that entirely because, uh, I mean, what was the one quote there? It was like, there is a branding issue, you know, is the quote from one of the sources that he had. I really disagree with that. And it's, to me, it's like a, it's, to me, it's a, a fundamental misunderstanding of what branding and marketing are about. To me, branding and marketing always come from eventually from the actual quality of the products or services, or whatever it is themselves. And so, sure, it is a little bit outside of Amazon's expected brand to, to ship a high-end, you know, phone that competes with the iPhone on quality. Um, and maybe some people wouldn't have gotten that right away. But the problem isn't that it that the Fire Phone was outside Amazon's brand. The f problem is the Fire Phone was a crappy phone, and so therefore it's not it, it it's the product. It all comes from the product. The product was a piece of crap that no one wanted to buy, and that was poorly reviewed. If it actually had been a really good phone, if it had been something that was compelling, it may not have been a smash hit right away, but at least would have fit with the brand they were trying to do, and then they could iterate for two or three years, and eventually it might catch on. But it all comes from the product itself. It had to be a good thing. No, I, 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 think, I think that's right. And the other thing, too, is um, if you step back and look at the e-commerce market, um, Amazon is a high-end brand. And they're a high-end brand because their number one proposition is selection and convenience. Yes, they've pushed price, but you see a brand like um, Jet.com is like the, the former Diapers.com CEO is like launching a new thing. It's like a Costco model, basically, where you pay a membership fee and then they they will give you the, their margin effectively. And, and it's like it's all, there's all these rules and it's convoluted and it takes longer to get your stuff. And there's all weird ways to get discounts. If you use a debit card, it's cheaper. It's a pain in the ass and it sounds awful to me. Like I would not want to use it. But I'm 
the sort of person that is willing to pay for convenience, for a guaranteed two-day delivery, for going to one place and getting what I wanted. I don't want to price compare. I don't want to like jump through hoops to get a lower price. But there are people who do. And and I don't think Amazon ultimately, when push comes to shove, I, I think they will prove out to be more of a high-end offer. Another another interesting e-commerce app is, is Wish. Wish is a mobile app where you you can basically buy stuff from China and it's really cheap and it, it sometimes it's crap and it, sometimes it takes like two weeks to arrive and sometimes it doesn't arrive. Like it's it's but it's super cheap and it's like interesting stuff. And it's exploding. And it's a very different proposition than Amazon. And I think we will look back at the e-commerce industry as a whole. And Amazon actually is going to be, Amazon is primarily in rich countries and it's used, I think, primarily by relatively rich people. And so not only are you right that the phone was crap and that was the biggest problem, and if they made a good phone, it would accrue to their brand, but I actually think the the characterization of their brand was wrong as well. Yeah, I kind of do. I kind of agree with that too. And, I, you know, and I think especially when you're getting into a new initiative, you've kind of got like a, a, a blank slate in terms of establishing the brand, right? I mean, like think about the Kindle, which you said was, you know, a, a hit right from the start. Well, Amazon wasn't known for making their own products at all, period. They'd never done it before. It was the first gadget they made. Um, and, it, you know, they defined the brand by the fact that it was a product that made people who were voracious readers very happy. Right. It's the Kindle as at least as an e-reader is, I think, a very well-perceived brand and is, you know, sits atop the e-reader market. I mean, and I have all sorts of little niggling complaints, complaints about the design of the devices. God almighty, I love I would love to see Amazon poach some Apple engineers and let them have at the Kindle e-ink hardware for a year or two. Um, But overall, it's, you know. It, it, I admit that all my complaints are more or less niggling and that the basic gist of it's this magic box that you can just read and read and read and read forever. And when you get to the end of the book, you're 15 seconds away from putting another book on it. Um, it all just worked. And it, the brand for the Kindle, it, it didn't really matter what Amazon's brand was before. The brand for Kindle was defined by the experience of using a Kindle, you know, and that's why it's a good brand. And if the phone had actually been compelling in some kind of profound way, then the Fire Phone would have had a good brand. Yeah. And again, it might take years for it to really catch on. Uh, traction is a weird, you know, is a weird thing. But uh, I really don't think that, any, you know, that the, the, the brand is defined by the products. It's not the other way around. And the thing is, like, the, I mean, the, the, the era of differentiating on the OS layer is, is over. Like, it's iOS and Android. Like, that's... <laughs> and... And the thing is, is like Amazon has lots of pieces to do interesting, to do interesting stuff. You know, like like the fire, like the most compelling thing in the presentation was the, like the Firefly, you know, application where it identifies stuff and you could put in your card, you could you could buy it or whatever. Like in that 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 fits Amazon. Now I think Amazon, you know, I think the whole endeavor was was a bit misguided. Uh, they would have been better off. Uh, they would have been better off focusing on the Amazon app on on iOS and Android. But if they if if they felt that was the right way to go, like that should have been the central point. And the reason it should have been the central point is because that's where Amazon can actually bring what they have to bear to create something truly unique. That's that's really compelling. Yeah. yeah. 
So what do you think that what do you think they're going to do? That's one thing I didn't really get out of the car articles. What are they going to do going forward? Is this such a disaster that they're just done making phones, or are they going to stick with it and do a Fire Phone too? I honestly, I, I thought that was the most surprising thing that he has so well sourced to get the story that he got, but it doesn't have anything about what their future plans are. I don't know. It's a really interesting question. I mean, uh, I mean, and it was a huge flop. I mean, it was. Uh, I what was the I think it was they only sold like ten thousand phones or something like that at least until they radically cut the price and were selling yeah it was like eight hundred million like, write off or something like that yeah I mean a huge write off and was it eight hundred million I knew it was hundreds uh, of millions but it, oh big, no one hundred seventy million sorry I was confusing with the surface um, yeah <laughs> yeah so, something but even so that's an awful. That's an awful lot. I mean, it was, and it's clearly internally they had projections that were a lot higher. Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, yeah. It wasn't a, a mild disappointment. It was a profound disappointment. Right. So I don't know. What do you think they're going to do? I honestly can't guess because it's their, their tenacious company and Bezos strikes me as somewhat stubborn. But on the other hand, man, it was such a turd of a, of a you know, market failure. I, I think that they, I, I, I like I said, I think that trying to really build out a a third platform is is a bad idea, and like and it's really a second and a half platform, right? But I don't know, it doesn't make it any easier, right? It's like there's Windows Phone, which is trying to be a third platform, and it's all new UI, all new APIs, even a different programming language. And the Amazon phone is certainly, you know, it's mostly Android, right? And it's the same language, at least. And, you know, games and stuff like that, I think you can pretty much just submit to their store and they just run. But still, it's... Yeah, basically, if you know, anytime you make, like, a, a location API call or anything involving the store APIs, uh, anything like that uses Google services, you have to go in and change. And it's, it's uh, in the grand scheme of things, a simple change, but it gets back to, like, the convenience factor, right? You're, like... One, a developer has to actually do it, and which they have other stuff to do. And two, uh, they have to support it. And it, it's one like that barrier. And like I've I've done developer work, like working with developers before. Like th those little barriers that seem, especially to someone trying to create a new platform. Oh, it's not that big a deal. You only have to do X. It 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 is a big deal. And it's a lot bigger yeah. deal than you appreciate. And it's a bigger deal not just for the big guys that you talk to, but for the long tail of, of developers that you know that are out there. Um, you know, if Well, and the other thing the other thing too is that strategically that's exactly where Google has sort of shored up and protected and you know, not to get political, but closed Android is by putting more and more stuff in the Google services Absolutely. library and less and you know, and, and actually taking stuff out of the Android you know, and the part that's called Android is open and the part that's Google services is completely closed. Uh, and, you know, even just little things like the way that they've stopped development of the web browser on the Android side. And they've only officially now developed Chrome, but that's part of Google services. Yep. No, it, 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 it rightly so, because that that is the bulwark. Like it, it is the app store that uh, prevents like there being... Uh, viable alternatives you know with the exception of china uh which has multiple app stores but that's that, like that's that's now the expectation for customers in china like you just go get different app stores and people have multiple app stores on their phone that's not the expectation anywhere else in the world and it's an expectation that is so cemented that i 
I generally believe uh, an alternative isn't 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 a viable isn't a viable thing. And that's why what's more compelling and interesting to me is is what's going to be built on top of iOS or, or Android. Uh, and right. and that's where I think Amazon should Amazon should be. That's where their efforts should be focused on. Again, this is balanced with. Like this is such a problem for companies is is, um, companies get so wrapped up in what like you can make a good argument strategically why it's important for Amazon to own their phone. And it's really easy to just kind of ignore the part of like it actually happening. It's like the, um, you know, like question mark, question mark, question mark, profit. It's like question mark, question mark, question mark. We have a platform like but but but. I mean, with like Windows or with Amazon, like we take this with Windows for phone in particular, like people are like, oh, Microsoft just needs to get developers. <laughs> the problem is Microsoft's not the one making that decision. The developers are. Microsoft has zero control over what they do or don't do. And and that's and if you're if if a key to your plan depends on independent third party actors who are like wildly disparate and like you can't touch all of them uh, making a decision. That's not a very good strategic plan. Even if from a big picture, it seems obvious why you should do that. And I, you and you see this companies tripping up on this again and again, just, just like skipping over that one detail that actually will sink the whole thing. Yep. Totally agree. Um, Let me take one last break here and thank our third and uh, final sponsor of the show, and it is our very good friends at Igloo. Igloo is the intranet you'll actually like. It's easy to use. It's built with all sorts of apps that are built right into the system. Shared calendars, Twitter-like micro blogs, file sharing, task management, and more. It's everything you need for a small team, a bigger team, to work together in one very configurable cloud platform. Um, how do you use it on mobile? Easy. Everything on Igloo is built with responsive design. So your internet already works like a champ on virtually any device, uh, you name it, iOS, Android, even modern BlackBerry. Um, anything with WebKit or a WebKit-like browser, it's going to work great. And it's going to be per- perfectly sized. Uh, everything works great because it's all mobile web stuff. It all scales perfectly for the new iPhone Plus, iPhone 6, uh, right from the start. You can review documents, you can post project updates, uh, you can change administrative settings, talk about um, uh, anything related to your team, all from your phone, exactly the same as you do from the desktop. Anything you can do in Igloo, you can do from mobile. Really, really, they they take it super seriously, and it really looks and works great. Um, Their file preview engine is fully HTML5 compatible, so... um, Anything that you can look at in the regular version of Indu, uh, uh, Igloo will render perfectly on your device. Um, this past June, last summer, um, Gartner released their famed Magic Quadrant for social software in the workplace paper. Now, this is, you, know, you hear Gartner and your eyes start rolling over and whatever. Well, in the, in the, in, uh, uh, <laughs> enterprise market enterprise i see i'm so far out of it i couldn't even think of it in the enterprise market gartner is a big deal this is the thing that gartner puts out for the enterprise um 
where they just rate all the different types of intranets that are out there. And for the sixth consecutive year, Igloo, tiny little Igloo, the upstart, is listed right there along giants like Microsoft, IBM, uh, Google, VMware, Salesforce, SAP, uh, right up with those guys. And in a report that values the size of the vendor, in Gartner's terms, that's called viability, Igloo is praised for their responsiveness and customer support. You call Igloo and you need help, guess what? You get Igloo and you get help. Uh, here's, here's right from the Gartner report. Feedback from Igloo's reference customers was consistently positive. They praised the product's quick deployment, configuration, and customization flexibility with self-service options for non-technical users, control over branding, and information organization and ease of use. They also praised the responsiveness of Igloo as an organization. In other words, translated to plain English, what Gartner is saying is what I've been saying on these sponsorships for a while is all true. It's easy to use. You don't have to be a technical expert. You can configure it yourself uh, and set it up just the way you need it for your team to use. Uh, and same as always, this is the most amazing part about Igloo. Here's the thing. It sounds good to you and you think, well, what do you got to do? Easy. Just go there, sign up. And for up to 10 people, it's just totally free. So if you have a team that's like 10 people or under, you can just use Igloo for free in perpetuity and not worry about it. If you have a bigger team, you can put 10 people together to try it out and see if it meets your needs before you pay a nickel, before you give them a credit card or anything like that. All you do is go there, sign up, and start using it and see for yourself. So here's the special URL. It's got a code uh, so they'll know you came from the show. It's igloosoftware.com slash thetalkshow igloosoftware.com slash the talk show. If you've got a team and you have uh, collaborate, you're not happy with the way you guys are collaborating, check out Igloo. It is really, really good stuff. My thanks to them. Uh, so last but not least, big week for Microsoft. Yeah, definitely. So they had a big event in up in Redmond. Uh, I guess it was ostensibly just for Windows 10, but Windows 10 was really just part of it. Well, I think that's, I mean, that's, that it's a shame, I think, because uh, everyone is talking about this Project HoloLens and no one is talking about what the event was supposed to be about, which is one, problematic, yep. and two, it's particularly problematic because I thought the, the, the part that the event was actually about was actually pretty compelling. Yeah, I thought so too. I watched live. I didn't catch the whole thing, but I watched most of it. I watched close to two hours of it. I forget. I missed a little bit at the beginning of the Windows 10. But I had the exact same thought. I was like watching the Windows 10 stuff and I was like, I'm pretty impressed. This is pretty intriguing. I like where they're going with this one operating system thing. And, you know, the demos were good. And they even, it was funny because Microsoft, I think, is notorious for having demos fail during yeah, they all worked. And, and they promised, look, this stuff is all early. There's going to be a lot of bugs in these demos. And I thought every demo was seamless, yep. which was funny because they warned that they were going to be buggy and they weren't. And then I thought it was wrapped up. I was like, that was a hell of an event. And then it just kept going. And I was like, wow, I can't believe they're mixing these things together. And on the other hand, I see how somebody else would say, well, doesn't Apple do the same thing where they announce these two phones and they're a big deal and, you know, you know, flagship products of the company. And then at the same event, they did Apple Pay and Apple Watch, you know, and released the preview of this device, which isn't coming out yet, which is exactly, you know, the HoloLens isn't coming out yet. But there's something about it that, to me, was it was less 
well proportioned in Microsoft's event, where Hololens distracted heavily from everything. Well, it's else. it's funny. When we last time I was on, we we talked about the fact that the iPhone never kind of got its day in the sun. Um, yeah. Well, I think I think. Well, here's the. I, in broad terms, I think one factor of that is that the iPhone six and iPhone six plus. I think uh, by all accounts, and it's next week where we're going to get Apple's quarterly finances, and everybody's expecting them to be gangbusters. Um, and I think they're going to exceed expectations. <clears throat> I think so too. All the evidence we can see and the, the cues we can get, you know, is that you know everything everybody thought is true that they were selling well in the US they're selling particularly well in Asian markets where larger size it's phones ins- there's just there's in still general. weights for for the for for right. the large one and the the other thing too is you're seeing especially in Asian markets people, like right off the bat people were talk about, talking about like the proportion of the 6 to the 6 plus that proportion is changing as the 6 plus gets supply so i i think yeah. in which means that the the average selling price is going to be higher like yeah it's 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 going to be crazy. Yep. A lot higher because it's $100 higher at each pricing tier and it's $100 higher at the starting price. So anything about demand anything that shows positive demand for the 6 plus in particular is huge for Apple in terms of average selling price. Uh I I honestly wouldn't be surprised if average selling price year over year is significantly higher. Which I don't think has ever happened before. I think it's always gone down. No, it, it always it always pops else. on the launch quarter because because well that's why I'm saying you're over yeah, oh yeah exactly no I agree I agree right I, it's you know and Apple has held average selling prices high compared to the rest of the smartphone industry you know obviously you know that's an extraordinary they're an exception in that regard but it still has slowly trickled down since the original iPhone you know in a way that's not worrisome for the company. It's probably actually been a positive sign that they've kept them as high as they had and kept the trickle low. But I think there's a serious chance that the existence of the 6 Plus will actually raise the average selling price year over year. Only the launch. I I fully expect that to be the case. I I agree. And like you said, I do think I think that there's still supply constraint on them. I think that they're selling them. They're they're, they they you know, they can't make them fast enough to meet demand yet. Um. But the story of the two phones, again, they're super important. I think they're super successful, like profoundly successful. Maybe the, maybe the most successful launch year of uh, iPhone to date. Not just, in fact, of record-breaking numbers, but just exceeding expectations. Um, but they weren't, they weren't hard to yep. explain. They were... They, <laughs> and it was like that thing that. Like, it's like the iPhone, but it's bigger. <laughs> yeah. And, you know, and what was, you know, like, what did Schiller demonstrate? Well, he talked about, you know, a lot of the photography stuff that they've done that's new. You know, it's a better camera than it was before. Not really that hard to explain. It's a better camera than ever. And they're bigger phones and they're thin and they get amazing battery life. And that's it. I mean, it was not a hard thing to explain because it's truly just an iteration over what they've done before and they made it bigger. Whereas Windows 10 compared to everything else is it, it demanded a story. It's a new thing. It, this this whole strategy of one OS that runs on everything from phones to small tablets to big tablets to hybrids to desktops is all new. And the way that they're sort of have this one OS but different interfaces that are suited to the different size devices um, demanded demos and attention and, you know, is it store? It's the whole story of Microsoft for the rest of the year, and it's a lot to I think brush that aside with a, you know, a, a prototype pie in the sky thing. No matter how cool, well, it's it is. not. It, it, 
it's even more profound than that. Like Microsoft, like the you, they can't take for granted Windows on the PC. Like it, it, the, it is under real threat. I believe uh, not just from the Mac, which is growing remarkably, but also from Chromebooks. Like the fact of the matter is, like I, I. I'm on record as saying, and and um, maybe not popular on, on an Apple podcast, but or a, you're not an Apple podcast. You're a all things excellent podcast. Um, right. <laughs> but like, yeah, that's why Chromebook doesn't fit. <laughs> or the Pixel does. Um, but no, most people would be exceptionally well served by having an iPhone and a Chromebook. And uh, and th- a lot of Windows, especially in the consumer market, is arguably due to inertia. But when it comes to the enterprise space, like the enterprise and businesses, that's the core of Microsoft. I mean, you think that consumers hated Windows 8 or that reviewers hated Windows 8 or that MG Siegler hated Windows 8. Like the enterprise hated Windows 8 times 100 because, it, yeah. I mean, there was actually, there, under the surface, there's a lot of good stuff on Windows 8 for, for administering it and security and all that sort of stuff. But the last thing any sort of administrator wants to deal with is having to teach people how to use their computer, right? Like, that, that's, yeah. that's, that, 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 that's awful. And that's what Windows 8 kind of brought them. And so Microsoft, like, there's nothing more important to Windows uh, I don't think it's more important to Microsoft because I don't think Windows should be the most important. We can get to that later. But there's nothing more important to Windows than like laying out like we've come to our senses. Like this is you can depend on us. We're like, sorry about that. This is something you can see and believe in. And that message needs to get out and it needs to be pushed out. Do you think it's Do you think it's fair Do you think it's fair to describe it as stop the bleeding? Yeah, for absolutely. I mean, well, well, okay, well, eight point one was stop the bleeding, arguably, but that was more of a like a, a battlefield, like, like what's what's the thing where you well, wrap around your arm and like it 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 stanches the like the blood flow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I know what you mean. Turquette or tourniquet? Tourniquet. A tourniquet. Tourniquet. We're demonstrating our bad pronunciation in. Yeah, tourniquet. Uh, yeah, I agree. And this is their way of saying, look, here's something that's new that we've been working on and that it's different and that we're proud to say we think you're going to like it. You know, here's us saying here's our vision for the future and we think it goes along with what you want to hear from us. Um, no, I totally agree with that. I, I Even with the Chromebook front, the, my familiarity with Chromebooks is through my son and they have a lot of them. It is most of the computing devices at a school that he gets to use are Chromebooks. I mean, there's a mix. There's some... MacBooks there too, but they don't get to touch them much. And there's some iPads, but it's mostly when the kids do stuff on a computer, it's on Chromebooks. Uh, and it's interesting to me because he complains about them. And it's not, again, I've said this before many times. It's If anything, he likes to tweak me, not please me. So he's not like pro Apple because his dad writes about Apple. If anything, he would love to complain about Apple um, just to get under my skin. He complains about the Chromebooks because he just says they're pieces of junk. I think they're, they're all Samsung's. Um, you know, just flimsy that he complains about the keys and he says all his friends do too. They all complain. They all want them replaced with MacBooks. Uh, and I thought it was interesting though. And then a couple of weeks ago, he said they had a big thing where um, they all got called together and like the lower school or middle school, I guess he's in middle school now, the middle school principal called him together and that one of the other fifth grade classes trashed a bunch of the Chromebooks. Like, you know, just way that fifth grade boys, probably the boys, let's face it, uh, and I was like, and I said to him, I said, you know what? That's why they make you guys just a piece of crap Chromebooks instead of MacBooks, uh, because you guys are rough with them. You know, you don't treat them like you would your own. You treat them like 
you know, yep. school property. Um, but it made me think just in large sum, it's there's a market for computers that an institution chooses for you for other reasons. And that may not be what you would want to use yourself. And that Microsoft owned that market, owned it a hundred percent. They had like a hundred percent of that market of stuff that an institution of any kind, whether it's a business, a corporation, like a fortune 500 or a middle school or something like that. Um, and Chromebooks are absolutely eating into that. And it informs everything else because, you know, what do they do on a Chromebook? Well, they certainly don't use Microsoft Word, right? I mean, it's, when they're typing stuff, it's in Google Docs, you know? And so everything that falls out of that, of them not buying, uh, if they're going to buy kids a bunch of piece of crap notebooks that can be used as beaters, um, them being Chromebooks instead of being Windows machines, uh, has all sorts of repercussions other than just the licensing fee for windows that they're not getting off the sale. Of yeah. Well, they don't, they don't get used to office. I mean, the reality is, is most people don't need office, but once right. you're used to it, you're used to it. And that's super powerful. And yeah. And Microsoft yep. shouldn't should, should, should take it for granted. I, the, the, right. It's just one, you know, schools is just one. Enterprise. I know, but you know, there's no doubt in my mind though. Chromebooks are a huge thing in education. No, no. Yeah. No. I mean, the, the numbers reflect that. Um, yeah, the, the the Chromebook thing is frustrating because like I I actually genuinely like using it. Like if your stuff is is actually all in the cloud, it's 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 a delight to use in the way like an iPad is delightful to use. In that like there's just no there's no cruft, right? There's no dealing with updates or like stuff popping up or like you know like when you deal with OS ten or Windows or anything, there's just so much stuff that came before that's still hanging around for various reasons. Um, whereas with a Chromebook, it's, it's just so it's, it's an appliance. It's, you turn it on and you type stuff in it and then you put it away. And I, that's why I like it. I don't like, cause it's cheap. I like it because it's so simple. And that's why I love the pixel because the pixel, like I'm paying for phenomenal hardware. Like the, the pixel is like, I can't, I can't speak highly enough of it. The, the keyboard trackpad screen, all Apple quality. If I put the keyboard above Apple actually, um, and but the problem is is most people buy Chromebooks because they're cheap, <laughs> so there's no market for right. it, uh, which is which makes me very sad. Yeah, I wonder how many pixels. They Probably sold. not very many. I bet, that, I, I bet that's another one that's sold in the. I, I'm tempted to pull a uh, you in the Apple extended keyboard. Like I want to buy up a couple of them so I could keep. I write like I, my daily updates, you know, which are more referential to current events, and like I'm winking a lot. I'll do those. I'll, I mostly write those on my Mac and multiple screens stuff like that. But like my big articles, where they're more like, for lack of a better word, like thought pieces or like like where I'm trying right. to articulate an argument. I almost always write that on those are almost all written on the pixel and just because I love the environment, right? There's nothing else going on right. and it's a great typing environment and the screen, gorgeous screen and like you can just like get lost in your document. And um, so I still, I still use it like at least weekly, if not more. Yeah. I don't, well, I don't think it's any coincidence that, I mean, there's that whole rise of, you know, like single window, window user mode and, and text editors that are, you know, like uh byword and other ones that are meant to be distraction free and run, you know, as a single window. Um, but I think in general, no matter what app you use, even if you don't use a single window user mode or any kind of thing that's designed to be distraction free writing on, a uh, laptop is just inherently more distraction free than writing at a desktop with a big window, you know, where you can yep. see much. No, more. totally. 
It just feels more focused. There's no, and there's no question. You just hear from people who write anything, you know, from novelists to journalists, you know, the, the biggest form to the quickest and shortest form, uh, you know, they just live and die by their, their, yeah, no, totally, totally. So the, the, the thing with windows though, is, um, what, 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 what I was most impressed by, was actually at the very, very beginning, the part that you missed, um, where um, they basically articulated the idea that uh, Windows needed to be or needed to be personal, and it it wasn't about the device; it was about the person. The person should be able to go from device to device. Like they're moving to where where there's more devices than people. And and if you think about it, Microsoft has always been about the PC, and that that that's how their business model's been based on. That's how their product development's been based on. Like everything's been based on the device. And, but the world today is you have to focus on the person. And so you have to have that. And this is what Apple is doing too with continuity and all that sort of stuff is you need to have this seamless experience. It's no longer enough to think about just OS 10. Like I, I love John Syracuse's conclusion to Yosemite. He really articulated this well. Like it's not that a- Apple is now developing disparate operating systems. They're developing one system with various manifestations that need to work together and and go across from wrist to to laptop to desktop to phone to, to to tablet, and Microsoft articulated this as well. And it's a bigger deal for Microsoft because Apple sells sells the actual hardware. So it, this new world fits their business model. It's actually even better for Apple because they can sell that many more devices. For Microsoft, this is a big shift because it, it it entails a change in everything that they do and the way their companies put together and the way they make money. And to hear them articulate it so clearly and succinctly was really encouraging. And uh, and I, I guess my, my my only complaint with the first part of the of the of the presentation, the part that we both liked, was the only problem with it was that all the demos were were a PC and a Windows phone or or a Windows tablet. And that's just not the reality. The reality is people, they needed to demo, I think, a Windows PC with an iPhone or with an Android phone because that's that's their customer. And I, I just think they needed to double down on the PC. And, um, and instead, they kind of distracted with this thing. And then you had Nadella getting up and talking about, we love Windows or we want people to love Windows. I, it, it, it just kind of went off the rails. That's a hard sell, though, to have them demo with iPhone. And, and I know that, you know, part of it, part of Microsoft certainly is more open to that. I mean, you know, if you go back to last year in the Build Conference where they had, you know, me and Brent Simmons and Dave Wiskus come out and, you know, featured in a product video for them because Vesper uses um, the Windows Live Azure. server stuff. Azure. Uh, and, and that's all very true, but it, it's a hard sell in a Windows 10 focused event, you know. But it is interesting. And I do think that in general sense that they, you know, it's just, you know, in an Apple-like way that they can only do so much year over year, but that they're iterating. And I feel like they're going in a very similar way where, like you said, with Syracuse's conclusion of the Yosemite review, that it's sort of one system with different interfaces for the different devices. Um, And I kind of feel like they missed that with Windows 8, where they kind of shipped everything with this touch interface, whether it was a touch device or not. And it was really mostly, you know, I, I don't know, just the overall tiled interface just really did not work well, I think, on laptops and certainly not on desktops. And it was really just sort of a tablet slash phone interface. But now they've got 
you know, it's it's more, it's really, you know, really is the same Windows 10. Like the the whole thing with the apps, I think is fascinating. And it shows how they're doing it at like a a higher level than Apple, where there's not a desktop Windows app store or not going to be for Windows 10 and a phone one. Like if you get a Twitter app, it could be the same app and it runs on your phone, it runs on your tablet, it runs on your PC, but has very different interfaces. Like when you're using it on your PC, it won't be like you're running an iPhone app. No, PC. exactly it. I mean, I think I mean Marco had a had a kind of a discourse on 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 ATP a few weeks ago about what you know is he going to build Overcast for the Mac, and in the Microsoft vision that wouldn't really be a decision. He would already have it. He'd have to design a new interface, but like he right, right. It, it's a big step for him to write a Mac app. That wouldn't be the case. Um, that wouldn't be the case for Windows. Yeah, and it's you know, like I said earlier with Instagram, where it, in today's iOS world, if you do the stuff that's necessary to support the you know the iPhone 5s size, the iPhone 6 size, the iPhone 6 plus size, going to the iPad is just a fourth size, and you know that's sort of what they're doing with the Windows stuff. And this isn't brand new. I mean, that was a big part of the message at Build last May was the way that you can build these universal apps that would run across a, a incredible you know, from TVs to phones with interfaces specific to those devices, you know, that you could have the same app. You could get it from the app store and on the phone, clearly it's a touch based device where it's all based on touching the glass and on your TV, it's all based on using a remote control to go up, down, left, right. The thing is though, and this is the thing for, for, for Microsoft, and it's both like the, the, the problem and the opportunity is the, this, idea of moving from device to device it's actually not it, it's not that much about the operating system it because all the, if you think about it like it's all it's all about the cloud like if, if and it's not it's not just about the cloud it's about a whole bunch of clouds so my facebook is is the same everywhere because it's all in facebook's cloud my twitter is the same everywhere my email is the same like a lot of the services we already have are already in sync across devices because they're inherently kind of cloud based and and that's i mean that that's and so to it's almost like to <laughs> i'm going to use the word to over index on on the operating system being consistent is if you think about it less important than having that kind of service layer that that's the part that is actually consistent the cloud is consistent across all these devices and oh by the way that's microsoft is doing really great stuff in the cloud and um, and I do think that Nadella gets this. There's a clear part of Microsoft that gets this. And I think it's still an opportunity to uh, – the glue can still be better even on iOS, on Android. And um, and I think Microsoft is making strong moves in that area. And I, I, I don't know. I mean, yes, it would have been a radical move, but I would have loved to – like how powerful it would it have been to have Microsoft just fully embrace the – we are the best PC operating system. Screw the Mac, screw the Chromebook. I mean, obviously we can disagree or you can disagree, but like that's a fair position for them to take. Um, and we, with our cloud, we work well with whatever device you bring, you know, along with it. Right. Especially with Windows Phone, but whatever, you know, whatever you're using, it'll work great with it. Yeah, I, mean, I just, I, I get Microsoft saying like we like if you use all Windows, it'll be the best because it is true. I mean, if you if you get everything from one company, you're likely to get a better experience. But the problem is, it's just not it's just not reality. And I, I just I don't know. I, I'm a big fan of 
I mean, it goes back to the Amazon thing. Like you can live, <laughs> do you want to go with what's best for you or what is like the way that customers actually live their lives? Yeah. So I feel like the event should have, I, I feel like the Surface Hub, which is their big 84 inch 4K TV touchscreen uh, whiteboard meeting dingus. I feel like that, that would have been a good way to end it. Right. Cause that fits that. And it wasn't distracting from the earlier message to me. It emphasized the earlier message, which is that windows 10 runs on everything from this hold up a phone. Right. And even a big Lumia phone, even a big five and a half inch phone is tiny compared to a giant 84 inch TV. Uh, and I think it was a cool surprise because the TV had been right there showing slides the whole presentation, you know, that this thing that they were announcing, which was a surprise, was right there in front of everybody. And it's super uh, compelling to the enterprise market then, and like which is which is the part the market that they really needed to assure. Right. right. And it's, you know, here's here's an you know, here's one thing where Microsoft can get out in front. And, you know, Apple doesn't sell anything like this. Google doesn't have anything like this. Nobody has anything like this, right? This is a product that's not really like anything else. And like you said, there's a clear – you can easily see how there's a lot of people this week who are saying, hey, we could use that, right? We, we could use that. That would be good for us, whether it's the whiteboard part or the meeting part or both. You know, it's, it's, you could, it's not like you have to jump through hoops to find a reason to, to – that you might want to buy it and then end it right there. Because I think that the HoloLens stuff, not that they shouldn't have done it. I just save it for build, right? Why not do that at build and have a cool, fun thing? You know, maybe they've got something else for build too, but I don't know, save that for build and let the windows 10 event breathe for itself. Uh, I, I, can... I think it's a tricky, it's a tricky comp. It's a tricky thing being one of those big companies where you've got a lot of stuff coming out throughout the year. How many events do you break them into? You know, how much do you shoehorn into one keynote? Um, but I, I think they made a mistake by doing HoloLens. Well, how about uh, announcing HoloLens when it's when it's going to ship in a month or it's going to ship in two months? Yeah, I don't know. And I, it also makes me a little skeptical. Like, and, and the people who got to play with it all raved about the experience. And so it doesn't seem like there's any kind of... It's a real uh, thing, yeah. Yeah, it's it's, you know... It's real technology, and every I didn't see a single person who tried it who didn't give it a very positive response. But it's clearly prototype hardware. You know that their their promised shipping device is a thing with no cables. You just put it's battery operated, and you put it on your head, and that's it. Whereas the thing that they let people try it involved like a battery pack on your waist and a cable connecting the battery pack to the thing on your head. <clears throat> And they had to take uh, physical measurements of the distance between your pupils and then enter it by hand into the device, whereas the, you know, the shipping product is supposed to be, you know, like, if you've got one and I try it on, it's going to, the device itself will measure the pupil distance to calibrate itself. Um, it's all very, that's, uh, raises all sorts yeah, of red that's flags yeah. in my mind. Right, it's going from ninety percent to hundred percent, and it that's, is that's the hard part. And it's sort of, it, 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 you know, it, of course, I'm going to bring it back to Apple, but it's an interesting contrast with the watch, where when they showed us the watch back in October, um, or I guess it was September, right? September was the watch. Um, it was, I mean, they didn't say it's final hardware, but it was as close to final, you know. 
I'm sure there might be some tweaks or something like that, but it was, you know, they were real. The things they let us, and they let us try them on our wrists, and, you know, it's the same materials. They were stainless. They, they were gold. They were aluminum. All the bands were there. We got to play with the bands. Uh, and they just didn't let us see the software. You know, they just had the demo loop of the software. But the actual hardware was there. I mean, it's there's no trickery about it. That's interesting, yeah. Where it sounds like Microsoft had the software pretty nailed down, but not the hardware. Well, no, but they didn't really. It wasn't. It was the software was also a can. The software they took people through was yeah, it was all canned. You know, everybody got the same loop. Uh, Well, I mean, and canned in a way where it wasn't just playing like with the watch. It really just played a loop, and there was no interactivity at all. Whereas clearly, this thing was actually like as you moved your head, was adjusting what you saw. You know, it was all, but you know. The things that you did were very, very limited. It was the, everybody got the same Minecraft game. Everybody got the same, um, you know, uh, a Skype call to how to hook up a which light was, switch, which, was, which I thought was the most compelling. Yeah, that's really cool. The, the 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 demo they had, it's you know, in the in the product video, they showed somebody getting help doing some home plumbing repair. In the thing that they gave to the journalists, it was a little bit of like, it was like hooking up a light switch, a little home electricity. And the idea is they had an expert electrician on the other end using Skype on a tablet who could see what you see through your um, HoloLens. And then he could annotate it with his finger on the tablet by saying, here, take this cable here and then, you know, draw a little line on it and hook this thing up to there and do that. You know, which is a very compelling. Well, it's not just compelling uh, from a use perspective; it's compelling from a product perspective because that, that I mean, that's a platform. Like it, it, you could see right. there being all kinds of services being offered, you know, o- over this. And it's an example of like right. I, I think, uh, you know, in the long run, I'm more interested in augmented reality than I'm in virtual reality. Like I think, I mean, Oculus Rift looks amazing, but to me, that's in the same vein as video games. Um, it is yeah. video games. I mean, and I might mean that to be dismissive because I realize video games are an enormous industry. Um, you know, like uh, Horace, did you just po- posted a point that uh, that the App Store is now paying developers more than the box office receipts of Hollywood combined in in the um, U.S. And yeah. some people, I link, yeah, and and some people linked that. Like, they're like, so what? And I was like, well, it's not a huge. It's not like a magic number. It doesn't mean anything in particular. It's just a. Just put it in context, though. Like you, we've all grown up knowing that Hollywood is Hollywood, and it, it's a big deal. You know, the Apple App Store alone is now bigger than that. <clears throat> yeah, but it's um, a destination. It's a thing you go and do. Whereas, like, the, what's so compelling about the smartphone is it's with you all the time in your actual real life, right. and you can see, like, in right. like ten years down the road, where the what Microsoft is doing is actually like a, a normal pair of glasses. Like the thing with Google Glass is yeah. like the 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 fundamental concept I don't think was flawed. Just everything about the product no. and execution was was horribly flawed. Right. And and the a lot of the the contrary feedback I've gotten this week uh, you know is it's like, well, how can you how can you say that this looks cool and you're, you know, did nothing but shit all over Google Glass for 2 years. And it's yeah, again, it's like I never I and I don't think anybody ever said that augmented reality is a goofy idea that's never going to take off. It was glass in particular. Everything about glass, the, the actual nature of how it was presented and their their proposal of how you'd use it right. was was wrong. Not the idea that augmented reality in general is bad. No. I, you know, I, I could see it. I could see it multiple ways. I can see it where, you know, obtrusive headsets like what 
you know, HoloLens is going to be when it ships. Uh, I mean, I, you know, you look like Robocop right. with well, the thing on. That's but okay, I though. I can see, I can see, right, you know, there's all sorts of things you do at home that you wouldn't do in public that you look weird. Like being, you know, hunching your shoulders over a little video game controller is not something you would do while, you know, I, I, you know, out in public. But, you know, while you're playing a game, it's fine. If you think about something like what's the precursor to the iPhone, it's like it's like the iPod. But from a, a fundamental level, they're very different products. The iPod was dependent on a PC. The center of your existence was the PC, the digital hub. And the iPod lets you carry music with you. Yet from a like a hardware perspective, the iPod very much led to the iPhone. You know, the what Apple learned, miniaturization, battery technology, all that sort of stuff led to the iPhone. And I think it's a similar thing here. Right now, it will start out as being something you do at home. You're not going to wear this RoboCop thing outside, but Microsoft will develop the expertise and and like how to build this sort of stuff. It'll get smaller, and at some point, they will be ready to make the shift. Uh, you know, to being something outside, whereas Google jumped straight to being outside when the technology isn't even remotely close to being ready, and and that's why it was a mess. And well, and everything fell out of that. Everything fell out of that because then, by trying to make it small enough that you'd even vaguely want to wear it or be willing to wear it in public, it was so technically limited that it wasn't right. compelling. There was never anything about it that was like a wow, holy crap. Whereas also, you know, that was more or less the response everybody had who got to try on the HoloLens at the Microsoft event was, wow, holy This crap. is what's so frustrating, right? Like it, the HoloLens, it, it was genuinely compelling. And it's compelling right. from a today perspective and it's compelling from a like 10 year from now perspective. And and right. it's just a shame that I, and so I guess they got the HoloLens benefit. But I mean, like, why did it have to be at this event? I that's exactly my point exactly, I I couldn't agree more and I and as the week has gone on and I've seen what people have written about I I, I my that was my initial reaction on day one, and it's only been reaffirmed because almost everything I've seen written since has been about Hololens not about Windows. Yeah, 10. and and one they needed to make points about Windows ten that like this is Windows and chill out you know we've we've come to our senses, and two like the vision was compelling but no one no one's paying attention to it. Right. And it's a hard thing. You know, I know you're there. I can see why they're excited about it. And I can see why they might have been excited to announce it. But I think you got to I think you got to hold that bullet for a little longer. Yeah. And again, it's not that you not that you have to wait until it's ready to ship, you know, next week, but, you know, just a little closer. And they have an event coming up. They have build coming up in just a few months. And I, you know, I don't think there's anything that would have happened in the next few months that would have made it less of a uh, cool thing to unveil there. Well, if anything, it'll, it'll be better. Right. I don't know, because it would only be, you know, further along. Uh, yeah, I can't help but think that they, they really wasted an opportunity there and mistimed that. Distracted from what the, the cool things they did have to announce and, you know, unveiled it, it, it too it, early. It's, anyway. it's kind of sad because it's it's almost like a lack of confidence, right? Like they weren't they weren't confident in what they had to announce or like their their status as a company. I guess, I mean, I can see where that comes from, I guess. But like... Um, they felt like they needed to juice it up and they didn't need to. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I kind of agree with that. Yeah. Um, otherwise, it was a pretty well run event, though. I do think that they're getting their act together on that front. Yeah. I mean, like uh, like they started on t- like it sounds stupid, but they started on time. Uh, the presentations were tight. The demos didn't fail. Um, 
like and that's that's that little that stuff matters yeah. and it wasn't the case even just a couple years yeah ago. and it's you know i think that it's it's also a sign to me the whole event even with them in my mind in your mind the mistake of tossing hollow lens in too as unnecessary icing on the cake or distracting icing on the cake uh, even with it, it still felt like overall like a new Microsoft, which I think they a needed and b that Nadella needed, you know, to assert, you know, in a public way to make it feel like, you know, he is changing the course of this ship. Yeah, no, it, it, I love the frosting idea because that's exactly what it was. It's like this is really good frosting. It's a really good cake, but these they shouldn't go together. Yeah, uh, you know, and what else? I, I mean. I, I would say making Windows 10 free. I mean, they're they're calling it free f a free upgrade for anybody running Windows 7 or 8 for the first year. I don't know why they tacked on that first year. Why not just say it's a free update for Windows 7 or 8? I guess the I, I, only thing I can think of is that they don't want people to wait. They want people running Windows 7 and 8 to upgrade within the first year. But it just seems like a weird like asterisk to put on it. But the whole idea yeah, of it being free seems like post-Balmer Microsoft. Well, it, it, Windows 8 was free for the first three months um, if you had Windows 7, I believe. So they did do it before. And the, the reality is is Microsoft makes the vast majority of the revenue either from enterprise licensing or from new PCs sold with Windows. Like on, Only like 10% of Windows revenue has ever come from people actually paying for upgrades. Um, but that said, it's still, it still matters and it's meaningful. And yeah, the one year thing, like it's not just that, but also they basically said anyone who buys a windows 10 PC will get upgrades for the, like the life of the, the life of expected life of the PC. And it sounds like it's going to be more of it. It really is more of a Apple sort of model, like OS 10 today where you get it and you're going to get upgrades and you're not going to pay, pay for those upgrades. And that, that is a big deal. It's a shift it, and it's a shift to this. The person being the center, uh, sort of sort of mindset that 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 is a bigger shift for Microsoft than it is for Apple yeah. because it it requires changing how they how they make money and and I kind of poo pooed it on Exponent this week, but I, I think you're right. It, it is it is it is worth um it is worth acknowledging. I think as, it's also it's even more worth acknowledging in the way that like the bugs in Apple software that we've all been talking about this month are so much easier to complain about than the things that they do that are just work that are kind of amazing that they just work. Um, and, and, you know, it's easy to take those things for granted. I think in Microsoft's case, praise for, hey, here's Windows 10. It's a free update for Windows 7 and 8 users is worth praising even more so because of how complicated Windows pricing has been in the past, you know, with the Pro Edition and Pro Enterprise Edition and, you know, eight different editions of the new version of Windows with, you know, just it boggled the mind and I feel like just saying, well, it's just windows 10 and it's a free update for windows seven and eight is such a, you know, it's, it's deserving of praise. If it, it's as deserving of praise as their old strategy was deserving of mockery. Yeah. Well, it, it, it's, it's always the old strategy made a lot of money. Um. Well, it definitely did. It, and it was just, but it was a salesperson strategy, you know, and I feel like, yeah. and it wasn't good for them in the long run. It definitely made money. You know, there's, you know, Bottom line, any any discussion or complaints about Balmer's leadership of Microsoft have to include the, but it made a lot of money uh, and ever increasing amounts, you know, but it, it, the, the having a, making your product line conf unnecessarily confusing, even if it's profitable, you know, in the short term, I think it's, 
it's detrimental to your branding in the long run. Yeah. I, what's fascinating for me to watch on Microsoft, though, and this is part of it, is it, it's uh, we actually saw this with Adobe. Um, like Adobe has fundamentally shifted how they make money from selling package software to selling uh, like software as a service, basically. And Microsoft is kind of going through the same transition. Right. And it's, and it's, it, I said this on Exponent this week, um, like the thing about Microsoft and you have to couch everything in this is what you're witnessing with Microsoft and all the criticism you want to levy against the company what they're going through is the price of being so absurdly successful. Yeah. Like, like for every smidgen that Microsoft was less successful, the easier their task would be today. Right. And, and so it's like, it, it, it's a testament to how successful they were that they're having to go through such wrenching changes now. Um, and, and uh, it, it, it's, it's fascinating to watch. And like, yeah, I was a little down in Adele's speech. Um, uh, and talk about windows and stuff. I think now I kind of think there might've been a political motive to it, but um, it's pretty remarkable to see the shift in Microsoft in just the last year. Yeah. It's, you know, but they, they needed to move fast. They said they're going to move fast, but you know, actions speak louder than words. And I think their actions back it up. So I think overall it was, you know, it was a very, you know, best event. I think Microsoft has had in a while, even though I think it so could have easily been better just by holding hololens yeah just a little it, bit it, the, yeah it's gotta be frustrating for them because it's like it because it's not like they it's not like it was bad it yeah. was just the wrong time and wrong place all right last question when do you think hololens is going to ship actually ship as like a consumer like something you can just go online and buy and how much do you think it's going to cost i would guess uh late 2016 in limited supply and it'll be hard to get and because i think when they say windows 10 time frame that means like it's like when windows 10 is like the product on the market it's not like when windows 10 ships before windows 11 ships that's what i that's how i interpreted it right exactly exactly although i do want i do wonder if there will ever be a windows 11 um like are they uh one final uh borrowing from from apple um the uh the price that's interesting i Three hundred dollars, two ninety nine. Oh wow! I, don't know. I was thinking. I think twenty sixteen. Uh, I I think if I wanted to actually have to be honest, I would have to say like you probably second half of twenty sixteen. I was going to say a thousand dollars. Yeah, that's possible. I it was more a like, are they going to like actually try to make a like a thousand dollars? Would probably be the smart thing because I think it's important to nail it. Um. The two ninety nine was more a like if they actually. I was thinking like connect, how much connect cost. I don't know though. I could be. I could see it being more a lot more. I could see their goal being making it a lot more consumer friendly. You know, three four hundred dollars. But I don't know. And it's certainly to me. And I know Apple only revealed the starting price of Apple Watch, um, but without releasing any suggestion of the price. And I know. You know, part of it is that they don't know because it's so far off. But it it opens themselves up to disappointment. If you don't set any expectations at all, it's very possible if it's above $500 that people are going to be outraged. Yeah. That's true. Right. You wonder, I wonder if um, if Apple, you know, once Apple Watch is really expensive and if it is successful, if that will kind of reset people's uh, expectations. Like, it, it, there's so much, there's such a focus on being cheap uh, in the tech press in particular 
and I think it's I think it's misplaced. I I I I think that especially as you get into more and more consumers that uh, aren't that just want stuff to work. Like there's a lot of people that are willing to pay for for not having a hassle. And the reality is I think a lot of those people who don't want to have a hassle have actually never really bought technology products because they've only viewed technology products as being a hassle. But now you have this, but now they are buying, they're buying smartphones anyway at a minimum. And I, I think in this market of people who a have money and B are not technical, uh, Apple is particularly well-placed and, uh, and it'll be interesting to see if if that ends up being the case, not just for Apple but for other companies as well. Well, you know, I I I just think it's it's telling that they gave away just the starting price, you know. And okay, maybe I'm sure. In fact, I guarantee it. I don't care whether you pay attention to you know like people like me and you who've tried to set the expectation that hey, the gold one, the edition is probably going to be several thousand dollars at least. Um, even oh, it's if, gonna be so fun. Even if you've been paying attention, there's a lot of people who I know who do not believe us, and therefore, if we're correct, are going to be disappointed if they were hoping to buy the gold one. Uh, and without question, there are millions of people who've never heard of us and have never read any sort of informed commentary on Apple, but who are aware of the Apple Watch and who think, "Well, I like gold. I love my gold iPhone. I'll get the gold watch." And they're going to be shocked as shit when they see the price. But at the very least, no matter how bad their reaction is on that, there still is an Apple Watch that they can't afford because it's at the three forty nine price that Apple had already mentioned. Yeah, uh, it's going to be interesting. I remain uh, very excited and intrigued, uh, you know, by the watch and how it goes down and. Yeah, well, you know, it, 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 it's fun. Like, what are the reviews going to be like? Like, what's it going to be like to use it? Like, what what are the sales? Like, there's just it, new categories are always fun. If it's March, if it is March, that'll be it'll be right around six months, and that would be the second one, second major product that Apple's unveiled with about six months of headway. You know, the iPhone being the first back in 2007. So, if we're right, if you and I are right about Hololens being like over a year away from coming to market, it'll be interesting to see how that plays out you know yeah how much how much does does do other similar products come out in the meantime uh do people lose interest do people get angry when christmas rolls around and they still can't buy one because everybody assumes because they announced it they're going to be able to get one this year well so i don't think anyone expects it this year which is oh i don't know about that i think i don't think anybody informed expects it i think that if you went out and polled a thousand people who play Xbox games, you know, do you think that when do you think Hololens is coming out? I'll bet you'll get a lot of people who said this year, because why else would they announce it? I think I don't think people think it through. I think casual people just think, well, they announced it; it must be coming out later this year. Maybe I mean, although the Xbox gamers probably, I mean, Project Natal, which I think was uh, the Connect. I mean that that was demoed. A long time before Connect came out. Yeah, people have short memories, though. That's true. <laughs> They're not very forgiving. Um, anyway, we can call it a show. Let's call it a show. Ben Thompson. Uh, yeah, we, we just got started three hours yeah. and nine minutes ago. Uh, my thanks to you. I super appreciate your time. Anybody who wants to get more of your insight can go to strategery.com. Stratechery, Stratechery. Stratechery.com. S T R A. T-E-C-H-E-R-Y dot com. Right. Stratechery. Uh, 
tourniquet.com. And and anybody who enjoys hearing hearing the dulcet tones of your voice can also hear you on your regular podcast, Exponent, at exponent.fm with your uh, co-host, James Allworth. Good show. Very good show. Uh, You missed the obvious joke, though, that um, my pronunciation is so bad that I couldn't even decide on the pronunciation of my own site. Yeah, well, we always mention that. (laughs) It looks good, especially when you see the tech in orange. Yeah, I deserve it. Yeah, We spent the whole show and we didn't talk about my switch to all caps headlines on my link list items. That's right. That's right. You Uh, came out (laughs) as a vocal proponent of, even though everybody... no, I'm a proponent of it because uh, it's it's similar to my site, like my my non main articles. Well, actually, all my articles are, but um, I don't know. I I I, I for me reading during Fireball, I, I think I'd, I I'm not sure I'm a fan. I have to be totally honest. Yeah, well, we'll see. We have to give it. Yeah, we got to give it a couple of weeks to see. Let it breathe. All right. Uh, all right. I'm hitting stop. <laughs>